What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm very happy to welcome back Dr. Ali Atai from Zaytuna College. Assalamu alaikum, sir. Wa alaikum salam, brother Paul. How are you? Alhamdulillah, very well. Very good to see you again. Good For those who don't know, Dr. Ali Atai is a scholar of biblical hermeneutics, specializing in sacred languages, comparative theology, and comparative literature at Zaytuna College in California. Just what happened to Jesus of Nazareth at the end of his earthly life 2,000 years ago is a point of dispute between Christians and Muslims. The Christian Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, tell the story about the death of Jesus at the hands of the Romans by crucifixion. Yet the Quran disputes these accounts. Today, Dr. Ali Atai will look to establish the historical plausibility of an uncrucified Jesus of Nazareth. So, over to you, sir. Thank you so much. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wa sallallahu Muhammadin wa la alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Yeah, so about a year ago, um, as you may remember, Dr. Uh, Louis Fatouhi appeared on Blogging Theology and did a wonderful presentation uh, on this topic, and I highly recommend uh, that people watch that podcast if they haven't already, um, or to watch it again. Uh, but I've been thinking about this uh, topic now for a while, um, and when I saw Dr. Fatuhi's presentation, it just sort of further motivated me to contribute something similar to the public uh, discourse. Uh, so maybe this will be um, something of a, a supplement or sequel uh, to what he uh, presented. I'm going to cover some of the same ground. Uh, but also look at a few additional things, inshallah. Mm -hmm. um, my presentation is a bit uh, long-winded, uh, so I apologize in advance. No, no, we, we like we like long-winded presentations of blogging theology because we like content, detail, quality stuff, so which you produce in abundance. So don't apologize for that, sir. That's good. So I do have a slideshow, so let's, um, oh, yep. let's go to there the title slide here. It's up there. Great. So I've titled this presentation, they did not kill him nor crucify him, establishing the historical plausibility of an uncrucified Jesus of Nazareth, peace be upon him. Okay, so, okay, how do modern secular quote-unquote scientific historians establish history? Hmm. Well, it's all a game of plausibility. Plausibility is everything. So historians like Bart Ehrman, for example, determine what happened in the past by asking a very simple question. In light of the evidence, what most probably happened, right? So this is how modern history is done. Did Barack Obama win the presidential election in 2012? Well, the answer is yes, because that is most probable. It is highly, highly unlikely, highly implausible uh, that there was some sort of elaborate global conspiracy and that we were all fooled. Um, but let's go back in time a bit. 
was Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone wolf in the JFK assassination. Mm. Well, now here, it used to be very, very probable that he was, but in light of new evidence over the years, it is now at least plausible that he did not act alone. In fact, the House Select Committee on, uh, on Assassinations uh, concluded in 1979, 16 years later, that there was probably more than one gunman. So the past did not change, only our perception of it has. Well, let's go back even further. Did Constantine convert to Christianity uh, before or after the Council of Nicaea, <laughs> 25 of the Common Era? Now things get a bit more hazy, right? The farther back we go, the hazier things get. Um, were, uh, were Muslims in the Americas first, or were Christians here first? Now here it actually depends on whose history we're reading. Mm. Are you reading Catholic historians or Muslim historians, Eastern or Western? If you ask an American historian um, who was the first man to fly an airplane, he'll probably say Orville and Wilbur Wright, of course, uh, the Wright brothers. Mm. Uh, if you ask a Brazilian historian, uh, he'll probably say Alberto Santos Dumont. Uh, so <laughs> whose history are we reading? So there are four main criteria of modern historiography. Okay, so historians, they look at four main things. So number one, multiple independent attestation of sources. And number two, early sources. Number three, criterion of embarrassment. And number four, social coherence. So in the case of Jesus of Nazareth, peace be upon him, most uh, mo so modern historians point out that we have four gospels and several epistles written by first century Christians that mention that Jesus was put to death via crucifixion. So apparently multiple independent and early sources, the first two criteria. Jesus was believed to have been the Messiah by his early followers, so they certainly wouldn't make up a crucified Messiah, that's embarrassing. Therefore, he was likely a crucified criterion of embarrassment. Also, the Romans crucified thousands of Jews in Palestine. So what's another Jew? Why should he be so exceptional? So, you know, Occam's razor. In other words, it is socially and contextually coherent that Jesus was crucified. In addition to this, it is very clear that the life of the historical Jesus of Nazareth, peace be upon him, ended abruptly around 31, 32, or 33 uh, of the Common Era, and that James became the leader of the Nazarenes until his death around 62 of the Common Era. This was probably because Jesus was killed and buried somewhere. So in light of this, historians have concluded that Jesus was most probably crucified. This is how secular history is done, what most probably happened. And I'll return to these four uh, criteria at the end of my presentation to re-examine, inshallah. So for historians, the most compelling evidence here is that a lot of Christians in the first century said Jesus was crucified. Yes, I agree. But a crucial question here is which Christians, whose Christian history are we reading? And I'll come back to this point uh, as well, inshallah. But let's pretend that there's a man standing um, on the top of a tall building, um, and I tell you that he got there one of three ways. So either he flew up there like right. Superman, uh, or he took the elevator. I guess you would call that the lift, right? <laughs> or he took the stairs. I think most people would say, he probably took the elevator. Now, is it true without any reasonable doubt that he took the elevator? No, he could have taken the stairs. That is plausible. It's just not very common. Flying, however, is a miracle. Okay. Now, a miracle by definition is the least plausible occurrence. 
a breach of natural law, a breach of customary occurrence or physics, both Muslims and Christians believe that Jesus's birth and end of his earthly life were miraculous in some fashion. In other words, both groups believe in the virgin birth of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus from this world. Both groups also believe in many of the same miracles that Jesus was able to perform during his life by the permission of God. From the standpoint of modern secular history, these things are considered non-historical. Why? Because modern historians do not presuppose God's existence. They have no access to God. They don't even consider the supernatural. They are naturalists. This is how modern historians like Ehrman operate. This doesn't mean that they necessarily deny the supernatural. They simply don't consider it in their method. Uh, and this is a bit different than how the father of history in the West, Herodotus, approached history. So Herodotus openly acknowledged the supernatural and that some event could have a double explanation, one natural and one supernatural. In other words, uh, the what and the why. Uh, so, so modern secular historians are, are essentially explanatory monists, like everything will be explained naturalistically. Uh, so in agreement with modern historians, Herodotus used akos, uh, which is a Greek, uh, Greek term meaning reasoning. Uh, for example, Herodotus, interestingly enough, um, did not believe that the Greeks attacked Troy because the Trojans were holding Helen. He finds that implausible. Uh, he thinks that the Greeks attacked Troy simply because they wanted to conquer Troy for their glory. And Herodotus was a Greek. Um, oh. Helen was just a pretext for war. Helen was a way to garner public support for an invasion. So he thought it was much more likely that Helen was in Egypt, not Troy in Asia Minor. So, so, they, they, so I didn't drop there. They, they, this Brad Pitt film, then, whatever it's called, uh, you know, Brad Pitt and the others, uh, is all wrong then, because it was all about Helena Troy in the Hollywood movie, isn't it? So we got to look again and perhaps question that as as a true account. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it was political propaganda. You know, the face that uh, launched a thousand ships, not really, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> but Herodotus, you know, he never discounted the supernatural. He considered the supernatural as well, and he's the father of Western history. So mm -hmm. it's ironic when a Christian. Uh, polemicist says to the Muslim that the night journey of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, to Jerusalem in one night and his ascension into the heavens is unhistorical, so Muslims should stop believing in these things. Hmm. So, yes, according to modern secular historians who never consider miracles, the night journey and ascension are highly implausible, but then again, so is the resurrection of Jesus. Are Christians going to stop believing in that? And Christians need to admit this about the resurrection, right? They need to stop claiming that the resurrection is historical according to the paradigm of modern historiography. And I would make a distinction uh, between the terms non-historical and unhistorical. So yes, from the standpoint of secular history, the night journey of the prophet, peace be upon him, as described in Muslim sources is non-historical because it is a miracle and miracles are not considered by modern historians. They're only looking for naturalistic explanations. The supernatural is just not an area that they concern themselves with. But I would argue that the night journey is not unhistorical uh, because apart from its supernatural element, which modern historians could explain away as being the prophet's dream, the historical circumstances that surround the event of the night journey are plausible. Now let me cite one example for clarification. In the book of uh, Acts, right? So Luke quotes Paul, 
who gives the uh, account of his conversion at his trial, right? The Damascus Road conversion, as it's called. So according to Luke, Paul explained that he had a vision of the resurrected Jesus. So this is a non-historical event. Why? Because it is a miracle, a supernatural event. From a modern historical standpoint, did it happen exactly as Paul through Luke told us? Probably not. Now, a Christian may still believe in this because he trusts Paul or Luke or he trusts the scripture or he has other good reasons for believing, be they theological, metaphysical, personal, or otherwise. Uh, and he can make those arguments. However, the reason why this story seems to be unhistorical is because of the non-supernatural circumstances of the story. This story encroaches into the area, the domain, the field of the secular historian. How? Well, according to the story, the high priest in Jerusalem commissioned Paul to bring Christians from Damascus to stand trial in Jerusalem. This is highly implausible historically. Why? Number one, the term Christian is second century. Mm. So there is an anachronism. Number two, the high priest did not have jurisdiction over anyone in Damascus. As Paula Fredrickson points out, the high priest didn't even have authority over the Essenes who lived in his own backyard. So, so just to pause there, sorry, uh, Paula Fregerson obviously is a very distinguished American New Testament scholar, uh, um, a professor, uh, and an expert in this particular field. Uh, just thought I'd clarify who she is. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So, so, so Paul's conversion story is not only non-historical due to the presence of a miracle, due to the presence of a miracle, it is plausibly unhistorical mm. as well because of its non-supernatural claims, its naturalistic claims. So this would be the equivalent uh, of the hadith about the night journey, about the prophet. Uh, it would be equivalent to, to the hadith saying something like the prophet prayed at the Dome of the Rock, Masjid Qubba al-Sahra, when he arrived in Jerusalem. So here a secular historian would say, well, wait a minute, that mosque was not built until 70 years later by the Umayyads. Clearly, this is a later tradition. Of course, the hadith uh, does not say that. Now, Araman believes that after Jesus' death, he was seen by some of his disciples. He believes that. But he also says that any explanation is more plausible than a man rising from the dead. The, the disciples experienced a group hallucination, much more plausible than a man rising from the dead. So if Christians want to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead, then that is their faith conviction. It is based primarily upon theological evidence and the credibility of those who made the claim but it cannot be historical in the modern secular sense. And that's okay. I mean, we have faith commitments as well as Muslims. I believe the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he said that he journeyed to Jerusalem in one night, I believe him because there is convincing evidence to me that he was a truthful man with unimpeachable integrity. The, the Arabs before Islam would refer to him as a sadiqul amin, the truthful and trustworthy one. So it's not blind faith, it's reasonable faith. Right. So in uh, if he said it, then it's true. And I have good reasons for believing him, despite the night journey being non-historical and implausible, according to modern naturalistic historians. So so Muslims and Christians at some point will both butt heads with the likes of Bart Ehrman. Both groups make non-historical claims according to the standards of modern secular historiography. <clears throat> I agree with secular historians. Uh, as do the Christians, that Jesus dropped out of history around 31 of the Common Era, 
but not because he was buried in some unmarked mass grave, uh, but because he ascended into heaven. And this is a miracle. So a secular historian would say that my view is not historical, and I'm fine with that. I believe that because my prophet said that Jesus ascended, and I have multiple reasons why I believe that the prophet was truthful. The focus of my presentation today is not on the miraculous birth of Jesus, nor is it on his miracles of uh, curing the blind and the lepers and raising the dead by God's leave, nor is it on his ascension uh, at the very end. Uh, <clears throat> today, I want to talk specifically about the historicity of the crucifixion and its immediate aftermath from a secular standpoint within wow. a modern secular paradigm. Mm -hmm. Is it plausible, just plausible, from a standpoint of modern history to conclude that Jesus was never crucified? If so, then the Quran's claim about the crucifixion is historically valid according to the method of modern historiography. Mm. Okay, so. Interesting. It is no secret that the Quran categorically denies that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And we'll look at the verse. So, so the, the prominent criticism of the Quran, right, is that the Quran is denying a non-supernatural historical event that is accepted by consensus of modern historians. Therefore, the Quran's position regarding the crucifixion is unhistorical. So this is the sort of uh, prominent criticism. Now, to this, uh, a Muslim might say, so what? I don't care what some modern historians say. I believe the Quran because I'm convinced that the Quran is the word of God and that the author of the Quran has direct access to history, as, as Dr. Faturi said. I trust Allah and his messenger. I have, I have many reasons why I trust Allah and his messenger. So just as I believe that Moses split the Red Sea by God's leave, despite what modern historians say about that event, I also believe that Jesus was not crucified, despite what modern historians say about that event. I have confidence in my text. I have confidence in Allah and his messenger. If the greatest monotheist of all time, the most influential man to ever live, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, a man whose name literally means the praised one who is constantly praised by human beings in every country around the world, if that man said that Jesus wasn't crucified, then I believe him. And I don't care what Bart Ehrman or Dale Martin or Dale Allison uh, whatever they say, I hear and I affirm the prophet is a man whose fruits demand our serious consideration. So if a Muslim were to say all those things, that's fine. I understand. And, and Paul, you, you mentioned in the past that the Quran's claim about the crucifixion is unfalsifiable. In, in other words, a modern historian can say to the Muslim that he's denying history as he sees it, but he cannot say that he knows with certainty that Jesus was crucified without a shadow of doubt. No one can prove that Jesus was crucified through the modern scientific method. To do this, you either have to go back in time and, and actually witness the event, which is impossible, or reproduce the event, which is impossible. So as Dr. Fatuhi pointed out, the past is ghaib, it's unseen. Yeah. So even the atheist has iman bil ghaib, belief in the unseen, a belief or a confidence or faith in what may have, been, in what, in what may have happened in the past, uh, based upon available evidence. Now, Dr. Fatuhi also made a, another excellent point, <clears throat> and I'm paraphrasing. He said, the, uh, he said that the Quran explicitly says that prophets were murdered by their communities in the past. Martyred or murdered prophets are not incompatible with the Quran's prophetology. Now, if the Prophet Muhammad is the real author of the Quran, which is the claim of 
uh, Jews, Christians, and atheists, and he desperately uh, wanted to convert Jews and Christians to Islam uh, and to become his followers, then why in the world did he deny the crucifixion of Jesus when both Jews and Christians maintain that Jesus was crucified? Why would he invent an uncrucified Jesus? Why would he create an unnecessary roadblock to conversion? <clears throat> the answer seems to be that the Quran is stating an actual fact since it has direct access to history as a divine revelation. It is simply a fact that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, peace be upon them, was not crucified. In addition to this, I might add that the Quran consistently revises uh, biblical stories um, in a way which makes them more plausible historically. The author of the Quran consistently avoids the historical pitfalls of the biblical narratives. I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about the miracles. I'm talking about the events that historians concern themselves with. So we see this concerning the stories of the flood, the story of Joseph, the exodus from Egypt, and with the Quran's sort of overall Christology that Jesus was a human being, a prophet, a teacher, and a healer. For example, just one example, the Quran does not say that basically two million people, two, two million Israelites made yep. exodus from Egypt as yep. the Torah does. This is highly, highly implausible historically. The, mm. the Quran says it was a small remnant. So now when the Quran denies the crucifixion, this denial should not be immediately dismissed as unhistorical. Rather, it should, it should deserve our serious consideration. But here's my contention today, <clears throat> okay? So I'm not contending that it is necessarily more historically likely that Jesus was not crucified. It is my contention, however, that the historicity of the crucifixion is highly overemphasized by secular historians. Uh, and as a tradition of secular history, historians continue to endorse the crucifixion. But when we look at the actual evidence, the historical case for the crucifixion is not nearly as strong as we have been led to believe. When we actually examine the evidence, we will come away with the historical plausibility of an uncrucified Jesus. And if it is plausible, just plausible, that Jesus wasn't crucified, then no one can say that the Quran contains a historical error or that it is unhistorical. If there is a reasonable doubt that hmm. Jesus was crucified, then secular historians must admit that the Quran's position is at least plausible. Can, can I sorry? Can I just pause that just for a second, just to add uh, the, the way that many Westerners have difficulty uh, w with. Uh, the idea of a non uh, uncrucified Jesus is to do with our culture in the last 2000 years. We, we, we see crucifixes in churches. Yeah. We see in war memorials, the first, second world war, uh, you know, all over France and in Britain too of crucifixes, you know, big stone statue crucifixes. It's part of our cultural experience to see a crucified Jesus. Uh, and this is not an historical point about first century of course it's about for us it's axiomatic as westerners that it happened because it's all over the place in in our churches in our memorials all over the world and so it has a, a certain kind of axiomatic quality to it but you're saying if we go back to the uh the actual evidence in the first century then there is reasonable uh doubt yes. that this was crucified as you say to re-examine the evidence i mean think about the assassination of abraham lincoln so if i said that a moroccan immigrant <laughs> shot lincoln <laughs> um, is that a historical error? The answer is yes. Why? There is zero evidence to support its plausibility. So I'm not asking if it's possible, rather plausible. There's, there's mm -hmm. a difference. Is there a reasonable degree of certainty that a Moroccan immigrant shot Lincoln? No. 
Uh, but now think about the JFK assassination. You know, if I said that there was a second gunman, is that a historical error? Not necessarily. Why? Because there is some evidence to establish its plausibility. It is plausible that there was a second gunman. So my claim is that I can come up with a theory of the crucifixion that is both in agreement with the Quran as well as historically plausible. In other words, we do not need to postulate the historically implausible to, in order to explain how Jesus was not crucified and how he was seen after some crucifixion event. Okay. Okay. So all of that was sort of just introduction. <laughs> Let's okay. move on here. Um, okay. Now, on a previous podcast, um, I explained uh, both the swoon and divine rapture theories. Okay. So just to very quickly review and then assess. The swoon theory is this idea that Jesus was placed on a cross, but he didn't die, right? He survived the crucifixion. The divine rapture theory is this idea that Jesus was placed on a cross, but before he could die from his injuries, afflicted upon him by his enemies, God directly intervened and seized Jesus's soul. Um, both theories give the impression to his enemies that they killed him. Hence, they did not kill him nor crucify him, but it was made to appear so unto them as the Quran says, under the swoon theory, Jesus was able to recover from his injuries, and then he was seen by his disciples and maybe others alive, right, still alive. Under divine rapture, God returned Jesus' soul to his body after seizing it, and then he was seen alive, once again alive. But here's the question. Are these theories convincing both Quranically and historically? So this is our project today, to postulate a theory of the crucifixion that is both in agreement with the Quran as well as historically plausible within the paradigm of modern historiography. So it seems to me that a potential problem with the swoon theory from a Quranic standpoint is that it cannot be easily reconciled with the broader Quranic discourse. Um, for example, we're told in the Quran <coughs> excuse me, that, that God will say to Jesus on the day of judgment, Behold, I restrained the Israelites from harming you, right? Mm -hmm. And the verb kaffa in this verse uh, is used seven other, seven other times in the Quran. And in every case, it means to restrain or avert from physical harm. So mm -hmm. if Jesus was fastened to a cross with ropes or, or nails or both, after having been probably flogged and beaten, it seems doubtful that this would constitute being restrained from harm, right? Even if he never died. Uh, so it seems to me that the swoon theory doesn't quite work when we look at the Quran more comprehensively. And by the way, Psalm 20, Psalm 20 verse six, uh, says that God will save his Messiah, right? Hoshia Adonai Mashiach, it says, God will save his Messiah. None of the Tanakhi passages that Christians claim are messianic explicitly mention the word Messiah, but Psalm 20 verse six does, and it says God will save his Messiah. And the verb is Yasha in biblical Hebrew, which means to save from physical harm, just as Kafna in Quranic Arabic does. Uh, divine, divine rapture from the cross also uh, suffers, uh, pun intended, from this same problem. A, a flogged, beaten, bleeding Jesus is very difficult to, to reconcile with these broader Quranic statements concerning him, <clears throat> divine rapture would also necessitate uh, that some type of resurrection must have occurred if Jesus made post-crucifixion appearances to his disciples. Either the soul of Jesus was returned to his corpse by God, who reanimated Jesus' body, 
or the disciples had individual and or shared visions of a phantasmic Jesus who had left his body behind in his grave. The former is the position of the gospels, while the latter seems to be the kind of resurrection uh, that Paul described in his famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, although neither Paul nor the gospel writers maintained that Jesus' soul was raptured by God, at, at least not in the sense that I'm describing what it means to be raptured. In other words, both Paul and the gospel writers say that Jesus was killed by human agents on the cross, but they differ on the nature of the resurrection. The Pauline resurrection of Jesus is where the body stayed buried and appearances were in the form of visions. Paul never spoke of an empty tomb. That is a later development. I'll return to the empty tomb later, inshallah. That's a good point. So Paul said this has been noticed by biblical scholars that Paul doesn't mention the empty tomb uh, that, uh, at all. And this is a it only appears in the much later uh, Gospels written after AD 70, Mark being the earliest, of course. So it's actually yeah. not there in the uh, first part of the first century. This idea is unknown. It's not there, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about Mark and the empty tomb narrative. Now, <clears throat> in addition to the uh, scriptural, that is, Quranic problems with the swoon theory, uh, the swoon theory is also historically a bit thorny. So uh, Muslims would have to grant, at least in a general sense, uh, the claim of the Gospels that Jesus' body was promptly removed from the cross at the request of one or more of Jesus' followers. So this is by itself highly unlikely, although, although not entirely unheard of. So in his autobiography entitled The Life of Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus, who died around 100 of the Common Era, he actually mentioned how he successfully requested Titus to remove from their crosses three crucified victims whom Josephus had recognized as being his old friends. Yep. Uh, all three men were still alive when removed from their crosses, but only one managed to survive. So this event, if it's true, probably took place around 70 of the Common Era, right around the time Mark wrote his gospel. Interestingly, in Mark, a man named Joseph, or Yosef of Arimathea, which sounds a lot like Josephus's name, Yosef bar Matathia. Maybe it's a coincidence. In any case, Joseph requested the body of Jesus from Pontius Pilate, and Pilate marveled that Jesus had died already. Perhaps Josephus's claim was floating around orally, and Mark heard it and decided to model Joseph after Josephus, but made it a point to emphasize that Jesus was in fact dead. I'll come back to Joseph of Arimathea. Historically speaking, however, the truth is according to Ehrman, that most of the time crucified victims were left on their crosses long after they had expired, precisely to deny them the dignity of proper burials, right? Leaving bodies on crosses to rot or to be eaten by animals was also an extremely effective way of deterring others from committing similar crimes against the state. Uh, furthermore, if Jesus swooned on the cross, this would mean that the Roman centurions in charge of Jesus' crucifixion utterly failed at their job, and such negligence would have put their own lives in imminent danger. So in my opinion, the swoon theory is, is problematic, both scripturally uh, and historically. Um, when it comes to uh, divine rapture from the cross, as I said earlier, secular history is a game of plausibility. Right? While it is certainly possible that God intervened and seized Jesus' soul before his natural death, uh, we can't say that it's plausible simply because secular history does not have access to God and cannot verify his actions. This would be a non-historical claim. Um, 
For example, if, if some absolutely conclusive archaeological evidence of an Israelite exodus from ancient Egypt uh, during the 18th or 19th dynasties were to be found, uh, a, a historian, at least in the secular sense, uh, would not conclude that they left because God ordered them to do so. This is simply unknowable from their perspective. Likewise, if Jesus died unnaturally fast, which is what Mark actually suggests, there's no way that a historian could verify that God miraculously hastened the process of death. Maybe God did, uh, but it's not plausible for secular historians. So when it comes to the event of the crucifixion, our goal today is to steer clear of both scriptural and historical implausibility. Again, we seek a theory of the crucifixion that is both in agreement with the Quran as well as historically plausible. Now, what about the substitution theory? So this is, in fact, the most prevalent theory found among Muslim exegetes, right? Yeah, yeah. And there are a few versions of this theory, but they all include some sort of supernatural identity transference. In other words, according to substitution theorists, somebody else, either Judas Iscariot or Simon of Cyrene or Barabbas or some unnamed Jew, was magically transfigured into the likeness of Jesus uh, and then crucified by the Romans by instigation of the Jewish leaders. From a standpoint of Quranic scripture, this theory works. Most exegetes, they take the phrase, they did not kill him nor crucify him, to mean that Jesus was uh, never anywhere near a cross, right? He did not swoon, nor was he raptured. This, this also works with the verse uh, that states that, G that God uh, restrained the Israelites from harming Jesus, peace be upon him. So scripturally, this seems to check off. Uh, historically, however, this would constitute a miracle and miracles are the least plausible occurrences. In addition to this, I have my doubts as to whether Judas Iscariot and Simon of Cyrene were actual historical persons. Perhaps some of these figures were the literary creations of the gospel writers for the purposes of advancing their respective Christologies, and I'll get into that later, inshallah. Maybe Jesus was indeed somehow substituted. The problem is that the substitution theory does not help us achieve our stated goal of offering a crucifixion theory that is both historically plausible and scripturally sound. Let's go to the next one here. Now, I want to say something about historians before we continue. So a common trope <clears throat> we hear from some atheists uh, is that secular historians are objective and unbiased and inductive, right? They go where the evidence leads them while religious people are, are impeded by their respective faith commitments. So this is just false. We are all biased to a certain degree, and anyone who denies this is just delusional. All of us bring our various degrees of knowledge and limited experiences and emotions to bear upon every aspect of our lives. If secular historians were perfectly objective and unbiased, then they should arrive at absolute consensus on all matters of history. Obviously, they do not. I think it was... Um, John Dominic Crossan, who said, and I'm paraphrasing, we all make Jesus in our own image. You know, mm -hmm. so was Jesus a protozealot, an Essene, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, an apocalyptic prophet, a cynic philosopher, or a slick-talking, public faith-healing con man? It depends on what historian you read. Uh, in fact, um, there have been seasoned historians, such as Bruno Bauer and G.A. Wells, who didn't even affirm a minimalist history of Jesus. In other words, they thought that it was more plausible that Jesus never existed. 
And there are now at least two peer-reviewed books written by highly trained modern secular historians that deny that Jesus even ever existed. These historians are called mythicists. Now, personally, I don't find their historical arguments very convincing, uh, but their conclusions just demonstrate uh, the point that in modern historiographical uh, studies, even the entire concept of plausibility is a bit nebulous and ultimately subjective to a certain significant degree. For mythicists, uh, such as you know, Richard Carrier and David Fitzgerald, Tom Harper and Robert Price, their shared contention that Jesus never existed has a probability greater than 50%, that is non-existence of Jesus is more plausible than any minimalist historical existence. Uh, according to Carrier, for example, his book is called On the Historicity of Jesus, Jesus started out as an angel in the Pauline epistles who made revelatory appearances to certain men after he was crucified by demons in the celestial realm, not on earth. This angelic Jesus was later euhemerized by the gospel writers who wanted him to be a man in, in actual human history, a literary incarnation, if you will. The same thing happened to Zeus and Uranus, who started off as gods, but were then made into human kings by Euhemerus, who was this Greek writer in the third century before the Common Era. Uh, therefore, the, myth the mythicist concludes that the gospels are nothing more than historical fiction, i.e. myth masquerading as true history, giving the appearance of history, verisimilitude. And this is what Celsus said in the second century about the gospels. I mention this because <clears throat> it is important to note that mythicists arrived at their conclusions by employing essentially the same historical method and looking at the same historical evidence as mainstream historians, such as Ehrman and Martin and Allison and Litwa and Fredrickson, who vehemently defend the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, for example, you know, if you watch the debate between Robert Price and Bart Ehrman, two atheist historians, they are quoting the same texts and looking at the same evidence, yet arriving at vastly different conclusions. Right? I mean, Ehrman would say to Price, you're not being inductive. You're not going where the evidence is leading you. But then Dr. Dennis McDonald would say to Ehrman, you're not being inductive. You're not going where the evidence is leading you. And McDonald, like Ehrman, is a historicist. Yeah. Dr. James Tabor, who just retired from UNC, you, you've had him on Blogging Theology, yeah. is a brilliant historian and has always been a brilliant historian. Tabor believes that the Talpiot tomb uh, discovered in 1980 was plausibly the tomb of Jesus and his family. Now, I know that Ehrman disagrees with Tabor, but would Ehrman say that Tabor's position is absolutely crazy and devoid of any reason? I doubt it. I mean, would he say that, that Tabor is, bl is blinded by his fundamentalist Christian faith? Tabor is not a fundamentalist. I think if I can, sorry, just point, uh, you make an extremely good point there. Actually, and I, I'm, it, it's good to sometimes biblical scholars, professional historians into uh, the first century, particularly Jew Jewish history and the historical Jesus. Uh, sometimes they're honest about this. Professor uh, Dale Allison, for example, from Princeton, who I've um, had on blogging theology a couple of times in, in in a recent work, admitted that the uh, the, the the standard tools for historical criticism uh, of this period have failed to produce consensus amongst historians. And he's very critical, you know, form criticism, redaction criticism, and so on. You mentioned the criterion of, of dissimilarity and so on. He, he said there's actually been, a, the whole project has failed. 
and and this this show you initially when you spoke or at the very beginning about the uh, the so-called you know scientific historical method but it shows that really it's not really scientific because we don't say that about physics when it looks at the laws of physics. We don't say it was just failed completely because physicists just disagree whether or not there are, are laws of physics. It simply doesn't happen. So it, uh, the project, according to Dale Allison, it has actually not produced the goods that its entire uh, scholarly apparatus was set out to deliver. And this is a damning indictment by one of, of, of America's leading uh, New Testament scholars uh, at Princeton. So I think your point is well made. That's what yeah. Point. yeah, I mean, I mean, would, would Ehrman say that it is not the least plausible that the Talpiot family tomb once housed the ossuaries of, of Jesus and some of his family members? If he does say that, then this just confirms my point that quote unquote objective faith bracketing historians looking at the same evidence can come to vastly different conclusions. Precisely. Right? Yeah, secular historians, that's the whole point. Secular historians yeah. can be very much at odds, and they also tend to change their minds. Now, I'm certainly not a Jesus, a Jesus mythicist, right? But I do believe that myth and legend has probably so permeated the gospel accounts of Jesus's passion narratives that it is not at all beyond reason to dismiss them completely as historical fiction, the passion narratives. And I will demonstrate this. We'll get there, inshallah. Now, now, Muslims in the past have had good theological reasons for believing the words of the Quran, and those reasons continue to hold true nowadays. As I said, we have ample evidence for trusting Allah and his messenger. But historically speaking, and by historical here, I mean the modern secular Western paradigm. Historically speaking, does it make sense to entertain the claim of the Quran on this matter? I would argue it does, if the Quran's claim can be supported by historical evidence. So people tend to dismiss the Quran because it came so many years after Jesus. You know, what does the Quran know about Jesus, they say. But if something is true, then it's true. So let me offer the following analogy. Suppose an American black man in the year 1900 uh, claimed to be a descendant of Thomas Jefferson, right? And he believed this with all of his heart, along with his family and friends. And he was known by all who met him to be a good, upright, and truthful man throughout his entire life. In his day, mainstream historians would have rejected his claim and ridiculed him, if yeah. not outright persecuted him. Now, a hundred years later, his descendants allowed authorities to exhume his body, and lo and behold, his claim was verified by wow. DNA analysis. Now, you know, doing history is not like examining DNA. It's not nearly as conclusive. In fact, history is probably the most imprecise of all the sciences there's always going to be a degree of, inter of interpretation. And of course, the past cannot be reproduced. In the science of history, all we must do is demonstrate that something is plausible, not simply possible. If Muslims can show that it is plausible that Jesus of Nazareth was not crucified by examining the sources and evidence, then critics cannot say that the Quran's position is unhistorical. After that, mainstream historians must admit that they may not have gotten things right. And as you said, there are some, like Dale Allison, who are starting to come around. If they refuse, then they are guilty of the same type of dogmatism and deduction that they frequently accuse people of religion as having. Now, Bart Ehrman is an, a very interesting example. Uh, he has said many times in public debates that he does not consider the, the canonical gospels to be very valuable as, as historical documents. And he rightly points out 
the inconsistencies, historical improbabilities, and outright contradictions in the Passion narratives and mentions that if the gospel writers got the minor things wrong, then how do we know that they didn't get the major things wrong? In other words, if the details are wrong historically, why do we assume that the big picture is right? He says this all the time. You know, here's a quote from him, quote, they are, meaning the gospels, uh, sorry, are they, uh, the gospels, the kind of sources that historians would want to establish what probably happened in the past? I think the answer to that question is no, end quote. Wow. Yet, when he is confronted with the Quranic position regarding the crucifixion, it seems like he suddenly turns Christian apologist and, <laughs> and fights tooth and nail to defend his opinion that the crucifixion of Jesus is one of the most, quote, solid facts of history, and even mocks those who say otherwise. And yet among his, uh, among his primary pieces of evidence for the crucifixion are the Gospels, the same Gospels that he has made a career of tearing limb from limb. So his logic seems to be that despite uh, the problems in the Gospels, they are still before the Quran, right? So he's an atheist historian, so before and after are very significant for him, and I'll address that in a minute. But what gets me uh, is when Christians use this before-after argument, right? Uh, they say, why do Muslims believe a text, you know, I, in the Quran, uh, that came 600 years after the New Testament? Why would you believe a man, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who said something that contradicts the New Testament 600 years later? So I have a question for the Christians. Why would you believe in the New Testament Jesus, who committed blasphemy by claiming to be divine over 1400 years after Moses said, God is not a man that he should lie? Why would you believe a man, the New Testament Jesus, who said something that contradicts the Torah 1400 years later? So my response to the Christian, who also believes in revelation and prophecy, is very simple. God revealed the truth about Jesus 600 years later. In other words, the Christian narrative is wrong. You know, this is not difficult, and I will get into that. But how will they answer my question? Will they say, no, 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 Jesus did not commit blasphemy? They won't say that. <clears throat> they can't say that, because then Jesus didn't claim to be God. You know, if they say that the passage in the Torah that says God is not a man is not authentic, then they're admitting that the Bible is corrupt. If they say something ridiculous like, yeah, it says God is not a man, but it doesn't say that he won't become a man, uh, then Jesus didn't commit blasphemy. So they are stuck at an impasse. Now, with respect to the Quran's position regarding the crucifixion, uh, let me offer a useful analogy. <clears throat> so I'm going to read something, and then I will comment. So on November 22, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated while riding in his presidential motorcade in Dallas, Texas. Almost immediately, the authorities had a suspect in custody. His name was Lee Harvey Oswald, a former U.S. Marine. <clears throat> Oswald was the perfect person for the American public to hate. He defected to the Soviet Union a few years earlier and was apparently a dedicated communist. This was during a time when the average American citizen had very little knowledge of the dark workings of his government. This was well before we had heard of the Gulf of Tonkin or Operation Northwoods or Naira Asaba, or Building 7, and WMDs. Two days after his arrest, Oswald, who claimed that he was, quote, just a patsy, was shot and killed by a nightclub owner named Jack Ruby, who may have had ties to the FBI and organized crime syndicates. 
Ruby conveniently died in prison of an apparent blood clot in 1967. In September 1964, the Warren Commission conducted, uh, sorry, concluded that Oswald assassinated the president and that he acted alone. We were told definitively that Oswald fired three bullets from his position on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. One missed wildly while two others found their mark with deadly precision. This was exactly what the freedom-loving American masses wanted to hear. One man, a lone wolf, a traitor, and he's dead. Any talk of conspiracy at this point was just ridiculous, unpatriotic, and even dangerous. <clears throat> at the very scene of the assassination, however, there were several eyewitnesses who said that they heard gunshots coming from a hilly area several hundreds of feet in front of the president's motorcade. This area was called the Grassy Knoll. A young married couple, William and Gail Newman, were standing on Elm Street in Dealey Plaza, along with their two sons, when the president headed directly toward them. The Newmans were situated exactly in between the Grassy Knoll and the president's motorcade. William stated in an affidavit that he thought the first two shots sounded like distant firecrackers that seemed to startle the president. The third shot, however, was believed by William to have been fired from directly behind him and his family from the grassy knoll. This was unmistakably a gunshot, and both William and Gail remembered the president's head exploding with blood and brain matter just a few feet in front of them. At this point, William and Gail instinctively hit the deck and covered their son's bodies in fear that they were caught in the middle of a deadly crossfire. William said that he was close enough at one point to hear Jackie Kennedy's horrified cries coming from the presidential motorcade. Both William and his older son also stated that they remembered seeing armed men running toward the hill behind them. Despite their eyewitness testimony in proximity to the assassination, the Newmans were inexplicably not interviewed by the Warren Commission. Wow. Throughout the 1960s and early 70s, historians were confident that the Warren Commission had gotten things right. But then on March 6, 1975, a short film shot by an eyewitness to the assassination named Abraham Zapruder was aired on network television. The Zapruder film vividly captured the gruesome damage caused by the final bullet as it struck the president. The president's head flew back into the left, causing brain matter to explode out onto the trunk of the presidential limo. The footage corroborated the statements of the Newmans, who stated that the final shot originated from in front of the president's motorcade and behind them from the grassy knoll. The importance of the Zapruder film cannot be overstated. Although nothing is absolutely conclusive, the film provided compelling evidence of a possible, nay, plausible second gunman. And that, by definition, is a conspiracy. Today, however, people are split on the matter. Interestingly, only the youngest Newman son, who is now in his early 60s and who does not remember the assassination, believes in the standard narrative of the lone gunman. Okay, so let's put this into proper perspective. Historians are still trying to figure out what exactly happened in broad daylight in Dealey Plaza on the early afternoon of November 22nd, 1963, less than 60 years ago. And this is with access to multiple eyewitnesses and video cameras. Huh. Yet Bart Ehrman and Christian polemicists want, want us to accept that the Quran contains a quote, historical error, because it denies that the solitary execution of a specific man 
took place 2,000 years ago in Palestine, an execution that may have lasted no more than a few hours and about which a single writing or statement from an eyewitness is not extant. In addition to this, anyone who believes this, uh, this event as constituting anything short of historical bedrock must be blinded by his religious zealotry and is thus deserving of mockery. So this is not a perfect analogy, I must admit, but I think it's adequate enough to get my point across. Verse 157 of Surah number four of the Quran is analogous to the Zapruder film. The Zapruder film was broadcast over a dozen years after the assassination, uh, but originated with someone who had firsthand experience of the event. The Quranic verse 4157 was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad in the year 626-627 by one who has direct knowledge of history. For a secular historian, however, my, my claim of the Quran's revelatory status is not nearly good enough. The crucial question is, is, uh, um, uh, is if 4157 can be substantiated by examining the evidence. In other words, can the claim of this verse, that they did not kill Jesus, be historically plausible? Okay, the verse declares, they did not kill him, i.e. Jesus, nor crucify him, but it was made to appear so unto them. But then to qualify this statement, the Quran says, and those who differed about it, the crucifixion, were in doubt concerning it. They did not have certain knowledge except that they followed conjecture. Wow. There are four key words used in the second half of this verse. Okay. The Quran is essentially making a claim here that it wants us to investigate. So first we are told that the early peoples, ikhtalafu, about the crucifixion. They had ikhtilaf. Ikhtilaf means difference of opinion. That the crucifixion was a point of contention. Then we're told that there was shek. Shek means doubt about the crucifixion. And shek is like 50-50, like two positions that are basically equal in probability. It can go either way. Then we're told that they did not have ilm, knowledge about the crucifixion meaning that it was just information. It did not come from a reliable source. Lastly, we were told that they ended up following dhan, conjecture, hearsay, where one position was given preponderance over another. However, dhan in Arabic suggests that the contrary may also be the case. In other words, the contrary is still plausible. But this is what the Quran is claiming. If we do the research, we will come to this conclusion. The Christians and Jews ended up following hearsay reports about some crucifixion event from non-eyewitnesses when there was a difference of opinion with multiple scenarios being plausible historically. So is this accurate? Can I, before, sorry, before yes. we continue, I just wanted to ask you um, about that verse, um, just a, as a small question. When you said it was a made to appear to them that it was so, who is the implied actor there? Who made it appear to them that it was so? Is this referencing God or is it or, or some other? Uh, uh, who is implied in that, if you see what I mean? The conceptual sort of um, um, active, uh, the, the, the doer of the verb. Most of the exegetes say that God, God uh, engineered this event. God made it appear so unto them. Uh, right. There may be some difference of opinion about this. And I have... Um, something else to say about this. 
okay. uh, later in the presentation. All right, thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. So, so according to the, so according to the second part of this verse, we are essentially told, okay, that none of the evidence that Jews and Christians marshal to support Jesus' crucifixion was written by an eyewitness to this alleged historical event. Every epistle, gospel, and historical record in Christian, Jewish, and Roman sources, without exception, came much later and were authored by people who were not there. These sources are conjectural. They are vanni, as the Quran said. Today we know that this is true. But back when the prophet first uttered these words, Christians believed in the following, and many of them still do. Uh, Paul took his teachings from the original disciples with whom he had a congenial relationship. Mark, a student of Peter, a disciple, wrote the Gospel of Mark, which states that Jesus was crucified. Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, wrote the Gospel of Matthew, which states that Jesus was crucified. Luke, a pupil and traveling companion of Paul, who was taught by the disciples, wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, which state that Jesus was crucified. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote the Gospel of John, which states that Jesus was crucified. Peter, a disciple of Jesus, wrote First and Second Peter, which states that Christ suffered for our sins, presumably by crucifixion. All of these attributions turned out to be false. All of them. This is standard historical criticism. These gospels and epistles are later writings that were either anonymously written or they are brazen forgeries where their authors are pretending to be apostles of Jesus and pretending to be eyewitnesses. In other words, the Quran is correct. The Quran made a statement 600 years after Jesus that turned out to be true according to the dominant view of modern historical Critics. It took historians a few centuries. Can I just, just oh. sorry, just to interrupt, um, just agreement with what you say, but I just want to emphasize that when you say this is the standard historical critical view, in my, to my knowledge, most historians in this field are actually Christians in the United States and Germany and France and Britain. It's overwhelmingly Christian dominated. So people like Bart Ehrman are exceptions. These are, he started off, of course, as a biblical scholar who was an evangelical. So he moved into atheism later in his career. The reason I mention that is what you've said is actually accepted by most scholars uh, who are Christians to be the case. So we're not dealing here with hardened skeptics who hate Christianity. Uh, we're dealing here with Christian, committed Christians themselves. I mean, I mentioned a whole raft of names from, from Jimmy Dunn onwards, who do believe in the Trinity, but nevertheless acknowledge the historical evidence is so compelling to them uh, to, to the, come to the conclusion, say the gospels, for example, are not written by eyewitnesses. And the problem is most ordinary lay Christians, shall we say, who are not familiar with what their own scholars have been saying for a couple of centuries now, are right. unaware of this and continue to believe that Matthew, the apostle Matthew wrote Matthew, the apposel John right. wrote John, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this huge gulf, this schism, which is well understood uh, that Bart Ehrman has references, uh, other people, uh, that most Christians are not educated, unfortunately, in basic historiography, which is uh, practiced by their own scholars. So th this is a real problem in terms of the, uh, the, uh, the scholarship for uh, the Bible, actually. But anyway. Right. You know, you know you're right. It, this is the standard historical criticism among non-confessional and confessional scholars. I and mean, Dale Martin is a Trinitarian. Yeah. He believes in the yeah. Trinity. Absolutely. You know, uh, Raymond Brown. Right. So yes. um, this is across the board. Yes, right? that's and true. The Quran also says, The Quran says their forgeries have deceived them about their religion. So this is true. 
Now compare this to the New Testament Jesus who made confirmed false prophecies. Not the, so the New Testament Jesus, not the real Jesus. So here's my question to the, to the Christian. If the New Testament Jesus made false prophecies, why believe him when he claimed to be divine? And in fact, most historians do not believe that Jesus claimed divinity. Most historians agree with the Quran here, not the New Testament. And, and by the way, any man, and we mentioned this in the past, in almost every podcast, any man, uh, Jew or Gentile, priest or rabbi, carpenter or blacksmith, any man who claims to be divine is a liar, according to the Torah and the Quran. Okay. Now, years ago, I debated a Christian apologist named Mike Lacona, uh, and he would go on to write a 700-page tome called The Resurrection of Jesus, right? Okay. Uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. now, Lacona, used the analogy of the Titanic, right? So he said that everyone agrees that the Titanic sank. The differences are in the peripherals, the details. When did it sink? Exactly when did it sink? You know, when did it break in half? Did the band really keep playing, etc.? So his point is, Jesus was crucified. Everyone agrees. The differences are in the details. So my response is twofold to this. Number one, I do not grant the premise that, quote, everyone agreed that Jesus was crucified. I think there's evidence to suggest that Christians prior to and concurrent with Paul, including the disciples, plausibly denied the crucifixion. And I'll get into that. Number two, uh, in addition to eyewitness testimony, there is forensic physical evidence that the Titanic sank. This is why everyone agrees that it sank. You can see pictures or film of the Titanic today yes. sitting at the bottom of the Atlantic, right? Is there physical, forensic, or material evidence of Jesus's alleged crucifixion? Is there any material evidence of any Jew who was ever crucified by the Romans in ancient Palestine? Apparently tens of thousands of Jews were crucified. And all archeologists have ever found was a single heel bone of a man with a nail driven through it. They call him Yohanan. I don't know how they know his name, but that's what they call him. I think he just made it up. Uh, tens of thousands apparently crucified, one heel, one nail, that's it. So either the numbers are greatly exaggerated or the vast majority of the time, victims were tied to their crosses. And by the way, only the Gospel of John says that Jesus was nailed to the cross and it's an implicit reference. Now a Christian apologist, might say at this point, but there is physical evidence of Jesus's crucifixion. Uh, what about all of these holy relics sprawled across the Christian world that provide material evidence of Jesus's crucifixion? What about the crown of thorns, the pieces of the true cross, the shroud of Turin? <clears throat> okay, so let's deal with these briefly uh, because this is you know easy. So the so-called crown of thorns displayed uh, at Notre Dame Cathedral in France this only popped up in the fifth century before the, uh, of the common era, fifth century CE. It is impossible to trace it back to first century Palestine, let alone back to Jesus of Nazareth, right? If Christians want to believe it's authentic because of a spiritual hunch or some feeling or insight, fine, but, but don't tell me it's valid historically. Um, when it comes to the various pieces and splinters of the quote, true cross, uh, church leaders have been very hesitant uh, to submit fragments for scientific testing, since testing is not only expensive, it also damages the relic. Perhaps more importantly, however, is the church's desire to preserve its reputation, especially since uh, what happened in 2016. So a supposed fragment of the so-called true cross 
you know, venerated for a thousand years at Waterford Cathedral in Ireland, was radiocarbon dated by researchers uh, at Oxford in 2016. And the results were less than thrilling for the church. The fragment was dated to the 11th century of the common era. Wow. Uh, the most famous Christian relic by far is called the, uh, the Sacra Sindon or the Shroud of Turin. So the shroud first emerged in France in the middle of the 14th century and was almost immediately, immediately denounced as a fraud by the Bishop of Troyes. Uh, nonetheless, the popularity and sort of the mystique of the shroud grew exponentially, especially when it was moved to Turin in Italy in 1578. <clears throat> it was radiocarbon dated by scientists at three different institutions in 1988, and all three tests determined a range between 1260 and 1390 CE with wow. a 95% confidence. Today, the official position of the Catholic Church, a lot of people don't know this, but the official position of the Catholic Church is that the Shroud of Turin is a representation of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, emphasis on the prefix re, representation. In other words, it's not an icon. Uh, sorry, in other words, it is an icon, not a relic. That's the official position. It's not a relic, okay? And, and by the way, there are two scholars, Andrea Nicoletti and um, uh, a man named, uh, I think, Cas Andrew Casper, who have done fantastic work on this topic. <clears throat> Conclusively, the Shroud of Turin has nothing to do with the historical Jesus of Nazareth. The truth is that the manufacture of relics in the Middle Ages proved to be very profitable. You'd have these hoodwinked masses, right, in hopes of attaining blessings. Uh, they would flock to various pilgrimage sites just to catch a glimpse of these counterfeits. And relics were often sold to unsuspecting and well-meaning buyers for incredible prices. I mean, it was a really, it was basically big business, right? One of the most sad but uh, famous relics is the, if I can put it this way, the foreskin of Jesus. And apparently there are thousands of foreskins of Jesus as sacred relics around, which obviously all can't be real, uh, just obviously. <laughs> yeah. And also, also you, uh, church authorities realized that there were several death shrouds, you know, yeah. and over and over thirty crucifixion nails. Wow, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, that was, uh, and, and over one hundred thorns from the crown, and these are all floating across the Christian yeah. world. It all hailed as being authentic. So what the church actually did is they conjured up this idea that most of these objects were contact relics, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, these were objects that came into contact act with the genuine articles and were thus also genuine in some sense that's you know some hardcore damage control the bottom line is that there is no direct evidence no direct material evidence of jesus's death by crucifixion so who said jesus was crucified well <clears throat> the authors of the four gospels traditionally believed to be two disciples of jesus and two disciples of the disciples all stated clearly that Jesus was crucified by the Romans at the instigation of the Jewish leaders and that he died on the cross. But here's the problem. According to a near consensus of New Testament scholars, both confessional and non-confessional, as we mentioned, the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John were anonymously written books that were later attributed to their supposed eponymous authors. These books were actually written between the years 70 and 100 CE or plausibly later by highly educated third or fourth generation Greek-speaking Pauline Christians. 
not by the Aramaic-speaking disciples of Jesus, nor even the disciples of the disciples. In fact, it is very likely that the authors of the Gospels had no connection whatsoever with the original disciples. Furthermore, none of the Gospel authors claimed to be disciples or eyewitnesses to the events that they described. If the disciple Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, uh, it doesn't stand to reason that he would copy substantial portions of Mark's Gospel verbatim, especially since Mark never met Jesus. With respect to the book of Acts, uh, I think it can be convincingly argued that it was mostly a work of historical fiction, as it plainly contradicts material found in the earlier Pauline corpus. And, and I mentioned in a previous podcast, <clears throat> the author of Acts clearly intended to present an idealized picture of the early church. It's revisionist history. It's sure. written in the second century that severely sanitizes the conflict between what we call camp yeah. on one side and camp James slash Peter on the other. Yeah, I mean, Acts reads very much like an ancient novel. I mean, this doesn't mean that it's totally fictitious, uh, but Luke did write according to his genre, and Luke never claimed to be an inspired writer. How did an ancient historian write history? Well, the answer is by simply making up a lot of things. Yeah. Luke imitated the literary style and method of his perennial teachers, Herodotus and Thucydides, who made up the dialogue according to what they thought was appropriate. I mean, Thucydides admitted that he was the real author of Pericles' famous funeral oration. You know, this is why Peter and Paul sound like the same person in Acts. They are the same person. <laughs> in reality, Luke, right? And no, things are these are very uncomfortable facts. When I first came across them myself, when I was studying uh uh, studies were very, very disturbing. As you, as you say, Thucydides, you know, one of the founders of history, historiography, uh, a, a, you know, a, a respected historian. But he said, "Look, I wasn't there at this battle, at that war, and this, this is what my, this is what I think the generals there would have said on the occasion, because that would have been the appropriate thing to, for them to say." So he created speeches and put them into their mouths. So the, right. the idea of ancient uh, historiography was actually to invent speeches, not out of some kind of malicious or oh, creating forgeries here, but simply because. There was no record of the speeches, and so they put them into their mouths. And what you've just said is actually the standard view when it comes to Acts, the book of Acts by Luke, that Luke wasn't there. The speeches attributed to Paul and, and Peter and others were put on the lips of, of Peter and Paul and others. And that this is the standard view now because that's how they did history in the first century. Yeah. And to say, to read back, we wouldn't do that today. Well, no, of course we wouldn't because we have a different methodology, different criteria. You don't invent speeches just like that but at that time you could and you did and it was respectable to do so and luke as a man of his time would have done exactly the same so we don't really have the words of paul and peter in acts at all i wish we did but unfortunately yeah. it's very very implausible to suggest that these are the actual words of these two people unfortunately right yeah this the author would say this is what i think they said this is what's yeah. plausible to me and and historians they, they generally they generally like Thucydides better than Herodotus because Thucydides is actually considered to be the sort of father of scientific history uh, because he he doesn't entertain this idea. So sometimes Herodotus will say, well, there was an earth, earthquake in a certain place and maybe this was Poseidon, you know, doing something in the ocean, <laughs> right? Whereas Thucydides, he sort of, you know, sticks to the facts as it were from a more secular standpoint. But yeah, he admits this is, this is what I think. And, yeah. and when we look at first and second Peter, you know, I mean, these are these are brazen forgeries written yeah. by someone 
pretending to be Peter at the end of the first century or early second century. So this really leaves us with Paul, the earliest author of the New Testament, right? And as we know, Paul was not a disciple of the historical Jesus, uh, nor had he known the historical Jesus. Now, obviously then, he was not present at Jesus's alleged crucifixion, not an eyewitness. According to the Synoptic Gospels, no disciple was present at the crucifixion. There are 13 epistles in the New Testament that explicitly claim Pauline authorship, okay? Yet scholars are almost unanimous that Paul only really wrote seven of them. So first Thessalonians, first and second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Philippians and, and Philemon or Philemon, however you want to say that, the other six are forgeries in his name. In fact, according to mainstream textual critics, at least 11 of the 27 books that made it into the New Testament canon are forgeries. To say it another way, over 40% of the books in the New Testament that many Christians consider to be the words of God were written by imposters who, according to Ehrman, may have intended to deceive their audiences and, and got away with it. Uh, this is according to mainstream historians. So why is Paul so important for us right now? Well, the answer is Paul of Tarsus was the first person in recorded history to claim that Jesus was crucified. And no one other than Paul, Christian or otherwise, explicitly mentions that Jesus was crucified in any other document we know of until we get to Mark in 70 of the Common Era. And of course, the evangelist Mark was highly influenced by Pauline Christology. In fact, Paul is by far and away the main character in the book of Acts. I mean, it should really be called the Acts of Paul. Yeah. Uh, Christian apologists insist that surely the disciples believed that Jesus had been crucified. I mean, this is a nice claim, but there's no, there's simply no compelling evidence for it, nor is there any compelling historical evidence that tells us what happened to the original disciples. All we have are later legends. The, the so-called epistles of Peter and James are later forgeries intended to smooth over Pauline and Jamesonian hostilities. They were not written by Peter and James. And we already mentioned that the Gospels of, of, of Matthew and John are anonymous. According to historians, James the Just, right? Yaakov had Sadiq was the leader of the apostles after Jesus's departure for 30 years. And yet we have no record whatsoever that James ever wrote anything. Are we really to believe that during the first 80 years of Christian history, Paul was the only Christian in the world who was writing letters to various believing congregations? Where on earth are the authentic letters of James? Peter, Thomas, etc. Why do we only have one side of the story? James, as head of the Jerusalem Nazarenes, wrote nothing? Really? For 30 years? Peter wrote nothing? Thomas wrote nothing? Dr. Steve Mason, he, he said it like this. He said it's like, he said it's like hearing one side of a telephone conversation, right? What's the other person saying? We don't know. I mean, we can make educated speculations, but we don't know for certain. Where are the books and gospels and epistles and histories of the Jamesonian Jewish Christians of the first century. Why was the first 80 years of Christianity scrubbed with a Pauline sponge? <clears throat> I mean, is not the Quran correct when it says that the Christians disregarded a significant portion of what was given to them by God? The Quran is, is correct again. Here's a quote from former New Testament uh, professor of Christian origins, uh, Burton Mack, okay? He says, quote, <clears throat> for almost 2,000 years, the Christian imagination of Christian origins has echoed the gospel stories contained in the New Testament. That 
That is not surprising. The gospel accounts erased the pre-gospel histories. Their inclusion within the church's New Testament consigned other accounts to oblivion. End quote. Burton Mack on redescribing Christian origins. You know, Josephus mentions 21 different Jesuses, 21 different Yeshuas, according to Steve Mason. The only undisputed mention of Yeshua Hanutsri, Jesus of Nazareth, is when Josephus speaks of James and the death of James in Antiquities 20. Many, many historians consider the Testimonium Flavium in Book 18 to be a total fabrication. Therefore, it is plausible that Josephus did not even mention the death of Jesus by crucifixion. James was much more important to Josephus than, Jane, uh, than, than Jesus. And this actually makes sense from the perspective of a non-Christian, non-confessional historian, because James was the head of the Nazarenes for almost 30 years. Jesus was a public preacher for probably only one year. <clears throat> now, a Christian apologist at this point will say, what about the creed of 1 Corinthians 15, right? The creed, the creed. This is their sort of bread and butter, right? Uh, Paul said that he received it uh, and then delivered it to the Corinthians. Uh, he received it from the original disciples. This is the claim, okay? First of all, what does the so-called creed say? It says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Which scriptures? It's hard to tell. It continues. And that, and that he was seen by Kephas, who's probably Peter. Uh, the Aramaic name of Peter was Kepha. It continues. Then of the 12, says Paul, a bit strange, right? According to the Gospels, Peter was one of the 12, and Judas is already dead. Also in the Gospels, women were the first witnesses. I'll get to that later. The creed continues. After that, he was seen by more than 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this day, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and all of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also. Okay, so the point that Christian apologists want to make here is that Paul, quote unquote, received this ancient creed directly from the disciples, that the disciples taught him that Christ died for our sins, okay, etc. At first glance, this seems like a good argument. It seems like this is what Paul is saying. However, uh, such an interpretation ignores the broader context of Paul's claims. Paul is extremely adamant in his letter to the Galatians that the gospel he is preaching is uk estin kata anthropon, is not of human origin. And he clarifies this in the next verse. For I neither received it of man, nor was I taught it, but by the revelation, apocalypseus, of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, after Paul claimed that he met with apostles in Jerusalem, he wrote, as for those who were held in high esteem, they added nothing to my message. Wow. So there you have it. Paul received, quote unquote, his gospel from what he claimed was a, was a revelation of Christ, not from the disciples nor any human witnesses. Notice that Paul used the same exact verb, uh, par eleban, in both 1 Corinthians 15.3 in the Creed and in Galatians 12. It was a so-called revelation of Christ that told Paul that Christ died for our sins, etc. He is not claiming that he received this from the disciples. 
In other words, the is not the chain of transmission of Christ died for our sins, etc. The is not of the of the creed of Christianity begins with Paul historically. Now, I'm not saying that Paul invented the crucifixion. I do believe that there was a crucifixion event where probably multiple Jews were crucified and that certain other Jews from the very beginning were under the impression that this one crucified troublemaker was the same man who instigated a disturbance at the temple a few days earlier. And I'll go step by step through my plausible historical narrative toward the end of my presentation, inshallah. Uh, but for now, let me say this. I think that rumors of Jesus's alleged crucifixion trickled down from certain Jewish authorities in Jerusalem into the general population until it reached the ears of Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. Paul, who was somewhere outside of Jerusalem. Rumors also spread of this man Jesus appearing to his disciples after his apparent death on the cross. So my contention is that while Paul wasn't the first Jew to say that Jesus was crucified, he was, however, the first professed, quote, Christian to maintain that Jesus was crucified. And his main motivation was Christology. Okay. Now, Paul accepted hearsay reports that had come out of Jerusalem stating that Jesus had been put to death on a cross, but could not explain how it was also reported that many people saw Jesus after his reported death. You know, the simplest explanation, the most historical explanation is what? That Jesus was never killed, that he was never crucified, uh, not that he was killed, buried, and then his disciples had mass hallucinations, nor that he was killed and raised from the dead. So Paul believed a false report. You know, this happens. You know, it was fake news, as they say. On the day of Uhud, okay, there was a false report that the Prophet Muhammad was killed. And we actually know what happened. A companion named Mus'ab ibn Umar, who resembled the Prophet uh, and who was the standard bearer on, the on that day, was killed by an idolater named Ibn Qami'ah. Ibn Qami'ah shouted, Qataltu Muhammadan. I've killed Muhammad. And this rumor spread like a wildfire. And some of the companions actually retreated back to Medina to defend the city. And many residents of Medina heard this false report as well. It happens. So, so Paul was able to reconcile these reports after having an epiphany, what he calls an apocalypsis, a revelation that eventually led to a religion called Christianity. Now, <clears throat> I encourage the viewers to go back and watch the podcast that we did on Paul versus James uh, for more clarity. But here's what I'll say about Paul for now. Um, and I'm not going to mince words, and I apologize in advance if some Christians find this offensive. Probably this entire podcast is a bit offensive to them. Uh, but I think it's important to speak honestly uh, and with clarity about these things. So I'm going to tell you what I really think, okay? So Paul of Tarsus was an ethnically... Jewish Roman citizen, okay? He was a traveling tent maker, an amateur Hellenistic philosopher. I think that Paul wanted to make it big in philosophy, okay? He was a marginal religious Jew who had also studied some Stoicism, Middle Platonism, Epicureanism, and he was familiar with the beliefs of some of the popular mystery cults. In fact, Tarsus, in the days of Paul, was one of the major centers of Greco-Roman philosophy in the ancient world. I believe that Paul was a very tormented man. I mentioned this before. He admitted that a messenger of Satan abused him. Uh, he said that he had some sort of 
uh, thorn in his flesh. And I agree with the opinion of scholars who say that the thorn was some sort uh, some source of continual annoyance or trouble. You know, imagine running a marathon with a rock in your shoe, right? It's a continual source of annoyance. It keeps poking you. I think that Paul's thorn was people constantly denouncing him as a fraud. Jews, pagans, and Christians. This was continuous throughout his entire life. I do not believe Paul when he says that he was a Pharisee. And I certainly don't believe Luke, who claimed that Paul was a student of Gamaliel. After years of contemplating this issue, I have come to lean towards the position that Paul was basically a charlatan. Paul was a self-aggrandizing, mean-spirited deceiver, a con man, basically, a snake oil salesman who would say just about anything to get fame and wealth. He wanted desperately to make a name for himself. He was a prototype of the televangelist swindlers who deceived their gullible audiences for fame and money. I mean, just from the subtext of 1 Corinthians, I think it's, I think it's very clear that the Corinthians were seriously questioning his apostolic pedigree, the legitimacy. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? This is my defense to those who would question my authority. I, I think there are several reasons why people suspect, uh, suspected Paul. For one thing, Paul deliberately misquoted the Torah to advance his theology, right? Uh, in 1 Corinthians, he quoted Deuteronomy 25.4 accurately, but then makes this very bizarre midrash. You know, he says... <laughs> He says, it is written, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. So what he means by this is that you should all pay me money for what I have done for you. He says uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, 11, uh, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? I mean, just watch these popular preachers and televangelists. The New Testament Jesus actually said it was easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter paradise. But if you listen to these preachers, they say, you know, sow that seed and reap that harvest, paraphrasing Paul, all the time. In other words, pay me, pay me money. So I think that the so-called Ebionites, who were really the early Jamesonian Nazarenes, and Ebionites is a pejorative term, I think that they were onto something about Paul. He was a deceiver and an apostate. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul tells the Corinthians, you know, collect the money, and when I get there, I'll give it to the poor saints in Jerusalem. You know, okay. In Romans 3, Paul refers to my lie, as he puts it. My lie. Now, there are different ways that Christian apologists try to explain what Paul may have meant here. Everything from Paul was speaking hypothetically to Paul was quoting an imaginary interlocutor. But it seems to me that Paul was caught in some lie. We don't exactly know what. And so he essentially says, if, my, if a lie of mine ended up glorifying God, is it really still a sin? This seems to be his argument. Um, this doesn't mean that Paul did not believe in anything he was saying. I think he did believe uh, I, uh, that he was living in the end times. I think he was sort of a half-believer, half-deceiver, who would justify his deception in some way to himself, probably like most televangelists, you know, whatever made these guys you know, sleep at night. Um, that's what made Paul sleep at night. Uh, I, I also don't believe Paul when he claimed to have met James or his claim about withstanding Peter to his face. I doubt that Paul ever personally knew the disciples of Jesus, uh, but he knew of them. And I think that James in Jerusalem was aware of Paul's false claims and would send missionaries to cities 
that Paul had evangelized to correct Paul's false gospel. Paul claimed to have met these men, James and Peter, because it gave him clout. It bolstered his credibility in the eyes of his followers who were being told to denounce him by the Nazarene missionaries sent by James. So, so, so Paul saw an opportunity to marry Judaism with Greco-Roman religion and thus become the founder of a new religious and philosophical movement. And he would make his teachings, i.e. his gospel, as he puts it, the intersection of two traditions, Judaism and Hellenism. According to Paul, the Jewish Messiah was the latest iteration of a dying and rising savior man-god who vicariously atoned for our sins. Now, naturally, Paul knew next to nothing about the historical Jesus. He never met him and, frankly, did not care much about his actual ministry and teachings. All he knew was that some Jewish authorities were claiming to have killed Jesus of Nazareth, a man who allegedly claimed to be some sort of Messiah, and yet many claimed that they saw him alive after his alleged crucifixion. This was all Paul needed to get his project off the ground. His entire gospel was formulated around these two rumors, essentially, that Jesus was killed by crucifixion and that he was seen alive thereafter. So just to be clear again, Paul was not the first person to suggest that Jesus was crucified. This is not my contention. My contention is that Paul was the first so-called believer in Jesus as Messiah to insist that Jesus was crucified, and he did this primarily for theological reasons. We do not know whether the disciples of Jesus believed that he was crucified, and I think that there are good reasons for maintaining that they did not believe he was crucified. Okay, the gospel writers who were not disciples were Pauline Christians. They believed in the sort of broad strokes of Paul's gospel that Jesus was killed by crucifixion for our sins and was then resurrected in some sense. This is the bare bones of Pauline Christology. The gospel writers were also very much aware of much dissent as to whether Jesus was actually crucified. And there's evidence of this in their gospels. The gospels are essentially extended passion narratives that support the central Pauline message that Jesus was the divine son of God who died on the cross for our sins then rose from the dead in some sense. The evangelists presented their specific passion narratives as being events that took place in history. However, the primary goal of the gospel writers was to impart theology, not to give us accurate history. They wrote history through the lens of their theology. So these are polemical tractates. The author of John admitted this in John 20, 31. These things have been written in order to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God. And a close examination of the Passion narratives leaves little doubt that the series of events that they describe are highly implausible from a historical standpoint. And we'll go over these events in a few minutes, inshallah. I'll show you uh, what I mean. Um, <clears throat> but let's first answer an important question posed by Dr. Bart Ehrman, okay? This question has actually stumped many Muslim du'at, callers to Islam. His question is, who would make up a crucified Messiah? Right? In other words, Jesus must have been crucified because no Jew would make up a crucified Messiah. Crucified Messiah or killed Messiah is an oxymoron. What Jew would ever cook up such a thing? Well, in my mind, the answer is simple. The answer is Paul of Tarsus. So Paul was a highly Hellenized Jew who said a lot of things 
that the majority of Jews found offensive. I think F.C. Bauer and Walter Bauer got it right. Paul was a corrupter of the gospel. I think Thomas Jefferson also held this position as an educated layman. Uh, but even with that said, Paul likely believed, as did several Jews in the first century, that the prophecies of Daniel 9 were about to be fulfilled, right? I believe that Paul was an apocalypticist. He genuinely believed that the world as we know it was about to end. And in my opinion, Daniel 9 has, has nothing to do with the first century CE. Uh, but many Jews in the first century did believe that Daniel 9 was referring to their time, including most likely Paul. And in Daniel 9, we are told that a Messiah will be cut off. Ikarith Mashiach. That is, a Messiah will be killed. A Messiah. There's no definite article in the Hebrew. The term Messiah, as you know, is a very loose term in the Tanakh. It could refer to a priest, a prophet, or some military leader. Now, Dr. Richard Carrier, who's an atheist and a mythicist, although I think a very interesting thinker and historian, he makes a good point here. He says that the reason why Josephus mentioned so many Jesuses, that is, so many Joshuas, because Jesus' name, Yeshua, is essentially Joshua, right? A shortened form like Josh. The reason why there were so many Jesuses during Jesus's time was because Jewish parents were naming their sons after Israel's greatest warrior, Joshua, in hopes of him becoming, uh, uh, being martyred while fighting the Romans. Interesting. Due to this passage in Daniel 9, they wanted to self-fulfill this prophecy. They're, they wanted their sons to be this Messiah. So to answer Ehrman, the idea of a dying or killed Messiah giving his life as a martyr for the sake of saving his nation, as it were, was not unheard of among Jews in the pre-Christian first century. Now, Paul, being an intensely ambitious amateur philosopher and desperate to make a name for himself, seized the opportunity to marry this trendy Jewish idea of a murdered Messiah with the popular pagan notion of a dying and rising savior, man-god. But for Paul, Jesus wasn't simply a Messiah. He was the Davidic King Messiah, who, whose supposed resurrection inaugurated the coming kingdom of God, which was imminent. Paul believed that it would manifest in his lifetime, and he was wrong. So for Paul, the Danielic idea of a martyred Messiah was significantly and radically modified theologically. Paul's Messiah was the Messiah who saved people by literally dying for their sins. So who would make up a crucified Messiah? An ethnically Jewish, apocalypticist, and syncretistic Hellenistic philosopher named Paul of Tarsus. That's who. I'll have to, I'll have to remember that string of adjectives. That's very good in, in my next, next time I mention who Paul of Tarsus was. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and now, um, so let's, let's, look, let's look briefly at a couple of passages in Paul's letters. Okay, one to the Galatians and one to the Corinthians. So this is Galatians 3 and 1 Corinthians 1. Okay, the, the alleged crucifixion was definitely a point of major contention among the congregations that Paul had founded. This is just a fact, and this is what the Quran says. The Quran says that there was ikhtilaf among the early Christians about the supposed crucifixion. Again, that's 4, 157, chapter 4, verse 157 of the Quran. The Quran is correct. There was a plurality of Christianities, even in Paul's day. The Quran is correct about this. I personally believe that Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians 
uh, because he was being exposed as a fraud. You know, apostles sent by James from Jerusalem traveled to Galatia to correct Paul's deviant teachings. Paul had to do some major damage control. So just some quick background information. So Paul had a big problem on his hands when writing his letter to the Galatians. So number one, he needed to convince his congregation that his gospel message was consistent with that of James because James was universally recognized as the head of the Nazarenes after Jesus. And number two, he had to simultaneously explain why the Jamesonian apostles who must have appealed to James when they visited Galatia in Paul's wake were, in Paul's words, false brethren, hypocrites, and teachers of a different gospel. I mean, we can only imagine the confusing scene in Galatia. The Galatians must have been scratching their heads and wondering why their seemingly trustworthy teacher Paul had taught them doctrines that did not agree with Jesus' successor brother and recognized head of the entire messianic movement, James the Just. So in chapter one of, of Galatians, Paul tried to mitigate this tension by insisting that despite receiving his gospel from no man, he did nonetheless eventually go to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James. And Paul mentioned this while swearing before God that he was not lying. I'm not lying. I'm not lying. This was probably because the apostles were calling him a liar. Paul's desperate oath to the Galatians reveals an interesting potential subtext. It is likely that the Jamesonian apostles accused Paul of being an unauthorized teacher of the gospel and a false apostle of Jesus. It is also likely that the apostles asked the Galatians, as they had asked the Corinthians, to demand Paul to produce a letter of recommendation from James, an ijaza, a teaching license from James. Only James authorized apostles. Everyone answered to James. Now, interestingly, uh, interestingly, Marcion, um, who was the early uh, Christian um, uh, heretic, he had an early version of Galatians that he quoted in his book, The Apostolicon. He died around 160 of the Common Era. And in Marcion's version of Galatians, uh, um, verses 18 to 24 of chapter 1 were not even there. In other words, Paul's claim of visiting Jerusalem and meeting James and Peter is not there. Wow. Now, nat naturally, Tertullian and other early church fathers accused Marcion of truncating and falsifying the text. However, many scholars maintain that Marcion's virgin, a version may have represented, in many respects, an earlier form of Galatians Gosh. that was subsequently interpolated mm. by the Proto-Orthodox to bolster the teachings and claims of Paul. The, the the oldest extant manuscript of Galatians is called P46, okay? It's dated to 200 of the Common Era, perhaps as early as 175. But even if we take the Permanus Postquem, like the early date of 175, that's 120 years after Paul wrote the original. And nonetheless, in Chapter 2, Paul seems to have doubled down on his claims. He boldly asserted that 14 years after his initial meeting with James, he returned to Jerusalem to preach the gospel there as well. It was then, claims Paul, that James, Kephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, in Paul's uh, words, so-called pillars, after having recognized the, quote, grace that was given to Paul, bestowed upon him, as well as Barnabas, the right hands of fellowship. And just as a side note, Bart Ehrman is inclined to the position that Paul claimed to be the apostle to the nations, of Isaiah 42, 
And we know from a previous podcast that the servant of Isaiah 42 is clearly the Prophet Muhammad right? In, in Galatians, Paul claimed that he went to Arabia for three years. Why? Because the servant of Isaiah 42 will convert the Ketarites and the Nabataeans, the Arabs. Isaiah 42 is very clear about this. Mm. Of course, Paul failed in Arabia if, and it's a big if, if he was even telling the truth that he did in fact go to Arabia, but I doubt he actually went to Arabia. I don't think Paul can be trusted. So Paul claimed that the pillars authorized him, right, as a fellow apostle, uh, although even these verses are contested as well. After that point, Paul felt it was necessary uh, to score points with the Galatians at Peter's expense. So he briefly recounted an incident that supposedly took place in Antioch, uh, during which Peter revealed his own, quote, hypocrisy by refusing to continue to eat with Gentiles when Peter saw that certain men from James had arrived. Paul then claimed that Peter and other Jews who committed hypocrisy with him were not following the, quote, truth of the gospel. So Paul justified his claim by stating that since Peter had already discarded the Jewish laws and was living like a Gentile, why did Peter now require Gentiles to follow Jewish laws? Paul wrote that he confronted Peter to his face in front of all the people because Peter was worthy of condemnation. This is what Paul is saying to the Galatians about some supposed event that happened in Antioch. The subtext here, I think, is very subtle. So Paul must have meant that the men from James were the real distorters and hypocrites. It was their presence that caused Peter to deviate from the gospel, according to Paul. You see, Paul cannot explicitly condemn James. James was too big of a figure in the early messianic movement. However, Paul implies that the men that James sent to Antioch must have falsely represented James and that this misrepresentation must have happened yet again in Galatia when they condemned Paul. The Jamesonian apostles were the enemies and not necessarily James himself. I think this is what Paul is trying to say. Therefore, in one fell swoop, Paul was able to do three, three things. Number one, denounce the Jamesonian messengers who denounced him. Number two, demonstrate his own superiority over Peter, who buckled under the pressure of the notorious false apostles. And number three, express an ambivalence towards James. I mean, it would have been nice if Peter had responded with a, with a letter of his own to the Galatians in response to Paul's grievous claims of him being a hypocrite, a coward, a deviator, and a closet antinomian. Unfortunately, there is nothing that can be authentically dated uh, to that time. Again, with Paul, we only have one side of the conversation. For me, Paul's story of his showdown with Peter in Antioch reeks of fabrication. I mean, if Peter could not get the gospel right in, wow. in, in the one to three years that he spent with the actual historical Jesus, what makes us think that Paul got it right after having a one-minute conversation? with a vision that he claimed was Jesus, if Paul's understanding of the gospel based upon his vision caused him to be in direct opposition to the understandings of Jesus's actual disciples, such as Peter and James, then what does it say about Paul's vision? If Jesus could just reveal the truth of the gospel, as Paul puts it, to Paul in an instant, why did Jesus bother to hand select and teach and train a bunch of disciples who are ultimately going to get it wrong anyway, and then forsake Jesus in his most dire time of need? You know, a Christian once told me 
<clears throat> Paul was right. Peter was known for misunderstanding Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself called Peter uh, Satan at one point due to P uh, Peter's failure to grasp his message. Peter also denied knowing Jesus three times because he was a coward. This is what the Gospels say. Now, yes, this is true, but, but the Christian often forgets that the Gospels were written uh, after all of Paul's genuine letters were composed and widely circulated, and that the positions of Paul, I would say the lies of Paul, most likely created many of the narratives in the Gospel accounts. In other words, Paul is the indirect author of the Gospels. In fact, James was completely written out of the Gospels, even though independent historical sources, such as Josephus, tell us that he was the leader of the Messianic movement after Jesus. And if it were, if, if it were not for the, uh, the, the tiny epistle of James tucked in somewhere in the back of the Christian canon, uh, the leader of the early Nazarenes for 30 years uh, would have been basically written out of the entire New Testament. Even in Acts, James is mentioned about four times. <laughs> I mean, Paul is mentioned 127 times. Mm. If James was an unbeliever during Jesus' entire ministry, as most Christians claim, why would he be selected as the leader of the apostles if his knowledge of the gospel and experiences with Jesus drastically paled in comparison to any other disciple, including Judas, whom I doubt ever existed, by the way. I'll get to that later. Clearly, the author of Acts had an anti-Jamesonian bias. He mentioned the leader of the entire Jesus movement four times, but Paul, his hero, 127 times. Again, is this Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of Paul? <clears throat> Why did the early Pauline Christians, including the gospel writers, claim that James was an unbeliever during the life of Jesus? Well, the claims of Paul in his epistles were highly influential. In his famous, quote, creed, Paul said that, he said that the resurrected Jesus appeared to Cephas, right? Then the 12, i.e. the disciples, then 500, then James, and then to me. Paul knows that he himself is a, uh, what, what do you call them? Johnny come lately, right? That he wasn't a disciple. But notice where Paul places James at the end, just before himself. It doesn't seem to me that Paul is giving deference to James. It seems to me that Paul is putting himself on par with James. But then he goes even further and he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. First uh -huh. Corinthians 15, 10. Paul claims to be better. But, but Paul, is, Paul is, sorry, just highlight the obvious here that paul is great at boasting boasting about his ministry boasting about his gospel boasting about his career uh you know which sits very ill with a kind of humble kind of follower of jesus that we would expect i think right yeah so let's examine what paul wrote to the galatians at the beginning of chapter three of his epistle this is key for our present discussion paul severely reprimanded the galatians for allowing themselves to be swayed or bewitched according to paul by the Jerusalem apostles sent from James, i.e. Nazarenes, into believing a different gospel than his own. So Paul wrote, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So this verse is usually overlooked 
or interpreted in a very basic sense without really analyzing its potentially explosive significance. The standard meaning is that the Galatians were convinced by Paul's opponents that the crucifixion of Jesus did not free them from the obligations of the Jewish law. However, the wording of the verse, as well as its overall context, may suggest that Paul's opponents who arrived in Galatia after Paul's initial visit not only advocated adherence to Jewish law, but also disagreed with Paul's very portrayal of Jesus being crucified, that they repudiated the cross altogether, and that Paul himself was the source of the crucified Jesus Christ. It was as if Paul was saying, why do you now maintain that Jesus was not crucified? Didn't I convince you that he was? Didn't I portray prographo in Greek? Didn't I portray him as crucified? It appears that Paul's apostolic opponents also visited Corinth in his wake, right? In his second letter to the Corinthians, he cautioned his congregation to not let their minds be corrupted by accepting Alan Ieson, another Jesus. Then Paul went on to reveal that his, uh, that his opponents, whom he mockingly referred to as super apostles, were of Jewish descent, right? So he, said, he says, uh, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? And then he says, I sound like a fool, but I served him more. Paul then provided a laundry list of his alleged sufferings for the sake of Christ, which included being beaten, stoned, flogged, shipwrecked, as well as uh, a daring escape from the grip of the governor of Damascus by being lowered in a basket through a window. I mean, this was supposed to convince his audience that he was truly sincere and more worthy of respect than his opponents who had actual teaching authority from James. So it is very plausible that the subtext of the book of Galatians is that apostles from James who went to Galatia repudiated the cross altogether and condemned Paul for teaching a false gospel. Where are the writings of James and Peter teaching that Jesus was crucified and resurrected? Where? Elsewhere in Galatians, Paul told us that he noticed that during his first trip to, to Jerusalem, he says there were many churches in Christ sprawled across Judea. Where are the writings of these churches that speak of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection? Where? Perhaps there were writings, but the crucifixion was nowhere. Why is it that the first believer in Jesus' messiahship to claim that Jesus was crucified in recorded history was Paul, a man who admittedly persecuted Jesus' disciples before his Damascus Road conversion, and slandered and ridiculed them after. Now, before we get to the Gospels, let me take a, a quick look at 1 Corinthians 1. <clears throat> so Paul wrote this letter because he was informed about massive internal quarreling, what he calls Eris, okay, Eris, which was also the name of the Greek god of, of strife. Eris in Arabic is ikhtilaf. Uh, Paul wrote, this is in 1 Corinthians 1.12, some of you say, I am of Paul, i.e. follow Paul. Others say, I am of Apollos, or I am of Kepha, Peter, or I am of Christ. So this verse is very strange. Uh, this is, um, did I quote this? Yeah, First Corinthians, so this is First Corinthians 1.12. It's very strange and has been notoriously difficult to make sense of throughout the centuries. So it seems that Paul was told by certain uh, Paul, uh, sorry, it seems that Paul was told that certain competing factions had arisen in Corinth 
and that each faction championed its own teacher as authentically teaching the gospel, right? Thus, the followers of Peter disagreed with those of Paul, and both, uh, both disagreed with those of Apollos. But what was the nature of their ikhtilafat, of their disagreements? And, and what are we to make of those who disagreed with Paul, Apollos, and Peter, and preferred to follow Christ? Now, Paul goes on to say, in essence, that we should all follow Christ, right? He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified? But what Paul really meant was that the Corinthians should follow Christ by following him, Paul. And this is what he says later explicitly, follow me because I follow Christ. In Philippians 3.17, he says, brothers and sisters, join in following me. He tells the Corinthians, if you are not married, follow me, just be celibate, right? The world's about to end anyway. What we do know is that Paul reprimanded the Corinthians that when he first came to them, uh, he did not try to speak with impressive speech or wise arguments, he says, but only to present Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul is saying that he could have sort of philosophically elaborated upon his teachings, but at the bare minimum, the Corinthians must believe that Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. If you don't believe that, you don't believe in my gospel, right? So in 1 Corinthians 1, it is very likely that the crucifixion of Jesus was the main cause of the dissension, the heiress among the different factions with some even rejecting Christ altogether because of it. Perhaps some of the Corinthians were influenced by the prevalent Jewish understanding and some by, the, by a philosophical Greek understanding. Because Paul stated, but we preach Christ crucified, an impediment unto the Jews, and an absurdity unto the Greeks. That is for the Jews, the idea of the sort of long-awaited Davidic King Messiah being crucified was an oxymoronic scandal, scandalon. While for the Greek wise men, i.e. philosophers, the notion of a literal God dying for our sins was morion, nonsense. Only uneducated fools believed in the literalness of such mythology, as Celsus once uh, pointed out. So, so, so Paul did not know the exact extent of the quarreling among the Corinthian factions, but only that it had something to do with the original his original pronouncement to them that Christ was crucified and that Peter's name was thrown into the mix. Okay, Paul wanted his congregation to rest assured that he and Peter and James, for that matter, were on the same wavelength about the crucifixion, despite what they may have heard to the contrary. It is possible that when Paul stated that the crucifixion of Christ was an impediment or stumbling block to the Jews, by Jew, he meant both non-Christian Jews as well as Jewish Christians. This is possible because he refers to Peter as a Jew in Galatians. Maybe the faction of Peter in Corinth denied Jesus's crucifixion. Again, Paul is the indirect author of the Gospels. This is a really important point, that Paul is the indirect author of the Gospels. In Mark, why does the Mark in Jesus, really the Pauline Jesus, that's really who it is, why does the Mark in Jesus refer to Peter as Satan? Well, Jesus, in quotes, says that he will suffer, be rejected, and be killed. When Peter heard this, he took Jesus aside and started rebuking him. So then the Mark and Jesus shouted, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on earthly things. Now, 
What does Paul say about his opponents in Philippians 3? He calls them dogs who mutilate the flesh. So these are Jewish Christians who practice circumcision. Then, he's, then he calls them enemies of the cross who, quote, set their minds on earthly things. What did, quote, Jesus say to Peter in Mark 8, 33? He said that he was setting his mind on earthly things. The Markin, a.k.a. Pauline Jesus, calls Peter Satan for objecting to Jesus being killed and says his mind is set on earthly things. Paul calls his opponents in Philippians enemies of the cross and says their minds are set on earthly things. It is plausible that there were followers of Peter in Paul's day who opposed Paul's notion that Jesus was killed. I think Mark is well aware during his time that there were Jewish Christians who claimed Sanad, they claimed a link to Peter, and denied the crucifixion. This is why the Mark in Jesus called Peter Satan, because Paul called the followers of Peter enemies of the cross 20 years earlier for plausibly denying that Jesus was killed. Now, whatever the disputes actually entailed, we will sadly never know for certain. We do know, however, that eventually Jewish Christian apostles, with letters of authorization from James, visited Corinth and preached another Jesus unto the Corinthians that diametrically opposed Paul's teachings. So to me, it seems that James was informed that Paul was throwing his good name around to bolster the authority of his own deviant gospel. By the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he warns the Corinthians that if they continue seeking proof that Christ genuinely speaks through him, in other words, if they keep questioning Paul's authority and legitimacy, Paul will confront them harshly and they will be punished by Christ. He tells them to not be deceived by a seemingly weak Christ hanging on the cross. Christ will de demonstrate his power when he judges them. So it is historically plausible that there were factions of Christians living in Galatia and Corinth and Philippi who repudiate the crucifixion altogether. Yes, it is also plausible that these Christians were persuaded by Jewish Christians who were teaching another gospel and another Jesus compared to what Paul was teaching. They were teaching uncrucified Jesus. This is totally plausible. Now let's move on to the Gospels. <clears throat> Most historians believe in the existence of Q, right? Bart Ehrman certainly does. Q, also known as the Sayings Gospel, was a written source of Jesus' sayings that Matthew and Luke used when writing their Gospels. I've spoken of Q in the past, so I'll keep it brief. Uh, in addition to the subtext of Paul's letters, Q is absolutely key for understanding what non-Pauline Christians believed about Jesus. How? Well, Q was most likely written in the 50s, independent of Paul. Now, Q probably had different strata of authorship over several years. Uh, but even despite this, let me quote what John Dominic Crossan said about Q. This is a direct quote from J.D. Crossan. There is nothing, nothing, nothing in the gospel according to Q about the crucifixion of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. Wow. There is nothing, nothing, nothing in the gospel according to Q or the crucifixion of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, J.D. Cross. In other words, the passion narratives of Matthew and Luke, right, either come from Mark, really a redaction of Mark, or they are unique to their own gospel accounts, what textual critics 
called special M and L material, special methane and leucine material. And of so course, you know, uh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow, but could, do, do, you, do you happen to know the source of John Dominic Crossan? Uh, which book he said that in? Nothing, nothing, nothing. This was in a podcast, and I, I can, uh, I'll, uh, I'll send it to you, inshallah. All right, I didn't realize. Okay, thank you. Sorry to interrupt. In a recent podcast. Oh, really? Gosh. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll send that to you, inshallah. So, so let me say that again. According to historians, the earliest known source of the Gospels said nothing about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. In addition to this, the traditions found in Q are plausibly representative of Jamesonian Christianity, pre-Pauline, Nazarene Christianity, Jewish Christianity. Is it plausible that the community that authored Q did not believe in the crucifixion of Jesus? Yes, it is plausible. Dr. Dennis McDonald um, reconstructed the contents of Q, which he calls the first gospel. Uh, first gospel compared to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Q is the first gospel. He says that Q was not written by a Christian, but by a Jew. He means a messianic Jew, a Jew who believes in Jesus, but not in the Pauline sense. He says in Q, there is no salvation by Jesus because of his crucifixion, end quote. And in fact, there is no crucifixion. According to McDonald, Jesus is making the Jewish law more compatible and more compassionate for people who are sort of on the margins of society. And this is why Jesus has these arguments with the Pharisees. He says that when you demythologize Jesus, you get a Jewish reformer, you get a prophet and teacher of a more relaxed form of the law of Moses. This is very close to what the Quran says. Jesus is quoted in the Quran, I have come to confirm the Torah before me and to make lawful for you some of what was unlawful. So fear God and obey me. God is my Lord and your Lord. Worship him. This is a straight path. Now, as I said earlier, the four gospels are the main, quote, historical sources of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And here's something else about the Gospels. Just as the uh, divine status of Jesus increases as we move chronologically through the Gospels, you know, this evolution of Christology from Mark to John that James Dunn and Bart Ehrman talk about, likewise, the evangelists want to increasingly convince their readers that Jesus was crucified. And one way in which they do this is by exaggerating the events surrounding the crucifixion. So in Mark, darkness came over the whole land, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, okay? In Matthew, there's darkness, the curtain tears, but there's also an earthquake and a zombie apocalypse. Many Jewish saints were resurrected, and they walked around Jerusalem, uh, appearing to many, according to Matthew. Some contemporary evangelical scholars have admitted that this is most likely a legend. And these include Dr. Mike Lacona, who debated me several years ago, and back then defended the absolute historicity of the crucifixion and resurrection accounts in the New Testament. It seems maybe he's changed some of his views in more recent years. In his book, he referred to the resurrection of the saints as poetical and an embellishment and special effects, right? So Lacona's new position has invited upon himself the wrath of many Christian apologists, including yeah, the notorious Norman Giesler of, of an answering Islam fame. Let me quote you Norman Giesler. He said he, meaning Lacona, claims that Matthew is using a Greco-Roman literary genre, which is a flexible genre, in which, and now he's quoting from Lacona, from his book, The Resurrection of Jesus, page 34, in which it is often difficult to determine where history ends and legend begins. 
Wow. Lacona also, this is now Giesler again, Lacona also believes that the that other New Testament texts may be legends, such as the mob falling backward at Jesus' claim, I am he, in John 18, and the presence of angels at the tomb recorded in all four Gospels. So this is very interesting. Lacona admits that this event in Matthew sounds a lot like Plutarch's death of Romulus. It's probably a legend. Now, Luke does not mention the rising of the saints from the dead. The author of John does something amazing. John, I'll just call him John for convenience. Uh, John has the advantage of hindsight. So in light of new developments among the Christian community, John can correct and revise elements in the synoptic passion narratives, right? John moves the day of the crucifixion up one day to the day of the Passover preparation when the lambs were being slaughtered. John is making a theological point here. Again, this is history made subordinate to theology. Either John is right or the synoptics are right, but both cannot be right. And Jesus was not crucified twice, but both can also be wrong. John eliminates Simon of Cyrene bearing Jesus's cross, saying that Jesus bore his own cross. John has Jesus impaled on the cross and he has Jesus's body anointed before his burial, all contradicting the synoptics and all made to demonstrate that Jesus was not substituted, he did not swoon, he was dead on the cross and buried in the tomb. Now, the so-called Gospel of Peter was written after John. And by the time we get to that Gospel, the church fathers said, okay, enough is enough. <laughs> In the Gospel of Peter, the cross comes out of the tomb and starts speaking to people. The, the early fathers said, we can deal with saints rising from the dead, but not with a talking cross. So we go from Mark, where Pilate marveled, is he dead already? And no one sees a resurrected Jesus, all the way to a talking cross in Peter, so-called Gospel of Peter. Matthew, Luke, John, and Peter increasingly trying to convince their readers that Jesus was crucified. Now, why was there an, why was there an increased insistence upon the divinity of Jesus from Mark to John, according to historians? The answer is because the evangelists were responding to Christians who differed about the divinity of Jesus. I would argue that this is the same reason why we also see an increased insistence upon the crucifixion of Jesus. The evangelists were responding to Christians who differed about his crucifixion. This makes total sense. So, okay, let's, let's examine the... <clears throat> Let's examine the passion narratives of the Gospels, okay? And you will see that event after event in these passion narratives is either historically implausible, okay, or most likely myth, allegory, or legend. That is to say, the author is making a theological point, not relating an actual event in history. Yet these Gospels are the main sources that establish the, quote, most solid fact of history that Jesus was crucified. My contention is that it is very plausible that every event, including the so-called crucifixion of Jesus in these Gospels, is legend. Q, the earliest historical source of the Gospels, uh, written independently of Paul, did not have a passion narrative. In Q, Jesus did not say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He did not say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He did not say, it is finished. He did not say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did not speak to his crossmates. He did not promise one of them paradise. He did not speak to Mary and the beloved disciple from the cross. 
The author of Q recorded none of these things. Why? Because he probably never heard them. Why? Because Jesus was probably never crucified. And here I have to recommend a scholar, an underrated scholar, Dr. Dennis McDonald. So he's a former fundamentalist Baptist uh, pastor and the son of a fundamentalist Baptist pastor. And he ended up getting a PhD from Harvard and he's been professor of New Testament and Christian origins at Claremont Graduate University. So his book is called Mythologizing Jesus from Jewish teacher to epic hero. And also a book called The Gospels and Homer. So Dr. McDonald, he highlights a major blind spot in New Testament historical scholarship, a major blind spot. And that is Hellenistic literary mimesis, or more specifically, Homeric literary mimesis. So Dr. McDonald is not a mythicist. Okay, so if he affirms the historical Jesus, what is Homeric literary mimesis or mimesis criticism? So it is this notion that the gospel writers are borrowing stories and events from the lives of Homeric Greek heroes like Odysseus, revising these stories to fit their narratives and replacing those heroes with Jesus. In other words, these events are not historical. The highly educated gospel writers knew fully well that many of these events never happened and their educated Greek audiences knew that these events probably never happened. This is the flexible genre that Lacona was talking about. Don't forget that Mark, for, for instance, was a highly educated Greek convert who definitely studied Homer, Hesiod, and Herodotus. This was the standard Greek curriculum at his time. The passion narratives in the Gospels were written as literary works of art. They were written to make theological and philosophical points. Okay, for Mark, historical accuracy was very much in the background. And when he does present history, he does it through the lens of his Christology. And of course, Matthew and Luke heavily depended upon Mark. This is also why the gospel writers constantly tell us that Jesus was walking and teaching, walking and teaching, walking. What is the significance of emphasizing that Jesus was a walking teacher? Well, the Greek verb for walking is peripateo. The peripatetics were Aristotelian philosophers. Exactly. Aristotle was famous for walking around the Lyceum and teaching his students. <clears throat> the gospel writers want to present Jesus as the new great teacher, the new Aristotle for the Greco-Roman audiences. It was only when huge masses of uneducated Greek-speaking Christians began hearing these gospels that all of these events mentioned in these texts began to be seen as true and literal, that they mm. forgot the genre of literature. So let's start with the anointing of Jesus by a certain woman, okay? So we can call this um, event number one. And I'll go in chronological order more or less, okay? <clears throat> so in all four gospels, we're told that some woman takes oil and anoints Jesus prior to the passion narrative. In Mark and Matthew, this happens in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, this woman is not named, and she anoints Jesus' head. In Luke, this happens in a Pharisee's house, and the woman anoints Jesus' feet with oil and with her tears. In John, the woman is identified explicitly as Mary Magdalene, and she anoints Jesus' feet as well. Now, in, book, in, in Odyssey Book 19, after a long journey, Odysseus returns home to Ithaca dressed as a beggar. His wife Penelope tells his old wet nurse and maid Eurycleia to wash his feet and later anoint him with oil. While she washes his feet, she notices his childhood scar. 
And Odysseus says to her, don't tell anyone or else I'll be killed. So we have this theme of secrecy, and this is very prevalent in Mark, right? William Reed, he calls this the Mark and Messianic secret. MacDonald calls this a Homeric borrowing. Now Eurycleia then dropped Odysseus's foot in the vessel after recognizing him. Uh, she is the only one who recognizes him. In Mark 14, the woman in Bethany who anoints Jesus does this because she is the only one who recognizes that Jesus will die. Now, what was the name of this woman in the Odyssey? Eurycleia. Eurycleia means renown far and wide. What does the New Testament Jesus say about the woman who washed his feet? He says, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. In other words, this woman's deed will be Eurycleia, known and renowned far and wide. Now, of course, there are differences between these two accounts. But the literary points of contact just seem too many to be coincidental. It seems that Mark based his story about Jesus upon Odysseus. Furthermore, it is totally haram, it is totally forbidden for a woman to touch a man whom she is not related to according to Jewish law. So if this story is true, then the New Testament Jesus is a sinner according to his own law. Now, I'm not saying that this story definitely never happened. Nothing is definitive. You know, a Christian might say here that this is a coincidence or that God engineered this event uh, in this way in order to facilitate the conversion of the pagans. And maybe some people find these arguments persuasive. What I am saying is that from within the paradigm of modern secular history, this story is highly implausible. Therefore, while Mark believed that, that Jesus existed, it is reasonable to conclude that this specific event never happened to Jesus. Mark is deliberately appealing to his Greco-Roman audience. This is deliberate. Mark wants Jesus to be the new Odysseus, the new hero. This is Homeric literary mimesis, so probably not historical. Now, Dr. McDonald says that Bart Ehrman is resistant to this methodology, uh, and yet Ehrman offers no alternative explanation. He just refuses to recognize these parallels. And this is because the dominant way to deal with inconvenient truths is to deny or ignore them. And MacDonald also said that Ehrman, he would have to rewrite half of his famous intro to the New Testament if he were to admit Homeric mimesis of, of, of the New Testament. Of course, he doesn't want to do that. You know, so much for induction. Uh, event number two, the Last Supper. So the Gospels tell us that a Jewish rabbi and messianic claimant celebrated a Passover meal by ordering his disciples to drink his blood and eat his flesh. For a Jew, this would be totally and absolutely revolting. But in various forms of paganism, theophagy, or eating one's God, was a common ritual. So this is highly questionable historically. It is socially and theologically out of whack in its supposed context. I think that Mark created the Last Supper narrative because of something in Paul, again, Paul is the indirect author of the Gospels. Paul says, on the night he was delivered, he took bread. Paul also calls Jesus, quote, our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It seems to me that Mark used these statements to create his Last Supper narrative and made the Last Supper a Passover meal. The Last Supper is most likely not historical. Event number three, the garden scene. In book 12 of the Odyssey, Odysseus and his men face a great temptation 
on the island of Thrinacia. Wherever, whatever they do, they cannot harm the sacred cattle of the sun god Helios. Odysseus goes into the interior of the island alone to pray and falls asleep while his men in the boats remain awake. Eventually his men revolt and slaughter the sacred cattle. This is reversed by the gospels. Jesus goes alone into the interior of the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and is tempted to not go through with his suicide mission. And he stays awake while his disciples sleep. Eventually his disciples forsake him and flee. So McDonald says that this does not seem like a coincidence. This is Homeric literary mimesis. This whole garden scene is plausibly not historical. Event number four, the naked young man. In Mark, and only in Mark, we are told that a crowd, that when the crowd arrived to arrest Jesus in the garden, a young man, a Nianiskas, who had followed Jesus there, was wearing nothing but a linen cloth, a sindon. This is Mark 14. When the men grabbed this young man, he managed to slip out of his linen cloth and run away naked. The identity of this man has baffled scholars for centuries. Two chapters later, when the women go to the empty tomb, they see the same young man, Neoniskos, dressed in a white robe sitting in the tomb, and he tells them to go to Galilee. This is not an angel in Mark. This is not an angel. So we have a young companion of Jesus who was naked and is now clothed. According to Mimesis critics, this young man is Mark's variation of Homer's El Penor. El Penor was the youngest companion of Odysseus, who died an untimely death in Odyssey Book 10. In Book 11, the soul of El Penor comes out of the netherworld and greets Odysseus and asks Odysseus to bury him. In popular, popular pre-Christian art, El Penor was depicted in this scene as naked to symbolize his soul. So then Odysseus goes back and buries El Penor in a tomb by shrouding his body. A young companion of Odysseus who was naked and is now clothed. Again, maybe this really happened. Maybe this is a coincidence, but it is highly unlikely. <clears throat> uh, event number five. The person of Judas Iscariot. I think this also originates with something Paul said, but was interpreted with much license by Mark. So again, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul says, on the night he was handed over or delivered, not betrayed. So pro-didomy in Koine Greek, in New Testament Greek, means to betray, but Paul didn't say that. Paul said that Jesus was para-didomy, handed over, handed over presumably by God to be sacrificed. This is most likely what Paul meant. In fact, Paul used the same verb to mean exactly this earlier in the very same verse. He said, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered, parodidomi, to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was delivered, took bread. I don't think Paul had knowledge of Judas. So I think that Mark misinterpreted this to mean betrayed, or more likely, Mark decided, for the purposes of telling a good dramatic story, that he was going to interpret parodidomi as betrayed. It's good storytelling. It adds to the pathos of the story. You know, Paul did say, however, that the Jews are unpleasing to God and contrary to all men. So Mark invented a betrayer whose name was, drumroll please, a Jew from the cities, Yehuda Ishkarioth, Judas Iscariot, 
Who betrayed mm. Jesus and his country bumpkin disciples? A wily, deceitful, thieving, city-slicking Jew. This is a Markin anti-Jewish trope. Gosh. This Jewish character is so evil, he even identifies Jesus to the temple guards by kissing him. What is Mark really saying here? Even if a Jew appears friendly and loving, he's not to be trusted? Paul famously said that the resurrected Christ appeared to the 12. This is just further evidence that Paul did not have any knowledge of any disciple betraying him. The 12, the longer ending in Mark, however, whoever wrote that, not the original Mark, he didn't have a choice but to state that Jesus appeared to the 11 because Judas was dead. So Judas Iscariot, plausibly not historical. Event number six, the midnight trial. Jewish trials in the Sanhedrin were only conducted during the day. Everybody knows this. Also, trials were never held in the houses of high priests. Also, there was a 24-hour waiting period before one could be sentenced. The Gospels ignore all of these. All of these rules are mentioned in the uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin. Here, the Christian apologists will say, well, it's still possible that it was a midnight trial in the house of the high priest and that Jesus was condemned and beaten and spat upon on the spot. Yeah, it's possible. Maybe that's what happened, but it is not plausible. You see, Mark wants to get his story going. A secret midnight trial is just more exciting. It keeps the story moving. Mm. So the midnight trial, likely not historical. Event number seven, Mark knows the transcript. How did Mark get a transcript of Jesus's trial in the house of the high priest? Who told Mark exactly what they were saying to each other? Not Peter. Mark says that Peter was in the lower courtyard of the palace, warming himself by a fire. So he was outside. The answer is Mark, like Luke, imitated the literary style and method of his perennial Greek teachers who made up the dialogue. This was a standard practice of the Greek writers and novelists, including Mark. If a Christian says that the Holy Spirit revealed it to Mark, fine, believe that if you want, but that is a non-historical claim, and Mark never claims this for himself. Event number eight, Pilate's reluctance. We are told in all four Gospels and Acts over and over again that Pontius Pilate was reluctant to condemn Jesus, that Pilate was sympathetic to Jesus, but that bloodthirsty mob of Jews outside essentially forced him to crucify Jesus. No friend of Caesar are you, they said to Pilate. This is highly historically implausible. Unlike uh, Paul, who never mentions Pilate in his genuine letters, Mark knew that Pilate was a governor of Judea at Jesus' time and that he was known for crucifying many Jews. So Mark assumed that he must have been involved at some level in the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark's brilliant storytelling was once again on display. I mean, he is a brilliant storyteller. By mentioning Pilate, Mark historicized Jesus for his Greco-Roman audience. But by exonerating Pilate of all culpability in the execution of Jesus, Mark carefully avoided criticizing the Roman authorities. For Mark, uh, Pilate, like Jesus, was innocent. Both were victims of the same bloodthirsty Jewish mob. This, in Mark's mind, created a type of uh, fraternal kinship between the Christian community in Rome, where Mark was living, and the Roman government. The problem, however, is that Mark's depiction of Pilate as a torn man who was essentially manhandled by a shouting rabble of Jews is simply historically implausible.
Pilate described, uh, sorry, Philo described Pilate as, quote, a man of inflexible, stubborn, and cruel disposition. Josephus said Pilate was willing to slaughter a multitude of innocent Jews who peacefully protested the erection of standards, that is, statues of Zeus in Jerusalem. Yet in Matthew, we have Pilate washing his hands. I am free of the blood of this innocent man. Let his blood be upon us and our children. And John, Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? So in John, Pilate affirms that Jesus is the king of the Jews. The Abyssinian church uh, canonized Pilate and his mm -hmm. wife, Claudia. He's Saint Pontius Pilate. In John, Pilate turns to Jesus and says, tell me what to do. Really? The historical Pilate would not have an Adam's weight of compunction about killing a Jew, okay? Um, so look, a Christian might say here, well, Jesus just had, just had this incredible effect on people. And I agree with that. I completely understand that. Jesus was a blessed man, peace be upon him, a prophet who changed the hearts of those he interacted with, fine. But don't tell me that this is a, that don't tell me this is historical according to the method and paradigm of modern historians. Event number nine, Sanhedrin to Pilate to Herod and back again. This is only described in Luke, the author who claimed to have a perfect understanding of the life of Jesus. So apparently Herod, the puppet tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, who was not exactly known for being a pious Jew, uh, made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. He was in Jerusalem, amazing. Uh, not only that, Herod was apparently not too busy to interrogate Jesus. <clears throat> So, you know, this is how a play or a movie works, right? Fast-moving scenes all during the day, Jesus before the Sanhedrin, then before Pilate, then before Herod, then back before Pilate, then he's condemned, then he walks to the place of crucifixion, and then he is crucified, and all before brunch. All of this happened before the sixth hour, according to Luke. That's 12 noon. This is a play. This is fiction. This is not how real life works. Event number 10, the Pascal pardon. <clears throat> so in his continued efforts to present Pilate as a benign, uh, dare I say, magnanimous Roman governor, uh, Mark claimed that Pilate, presumably due to the kindness of his heart, wanted to release a Jewish prisoner in celebration of the impending Passover holiday. Therefore, he gave the crowd a choice between Jesus and a criminal named Barabbas. The crowd chose Barabbas, who was released, while Jesus was reluctantly del delivered up to be crucified. Now, given what Philo and Josephus said about the character of Pontius Pilate, it is highly historically implausible, to say the least, that Pilate would even offer such a Pascal pardon, let alone assent to release a dangerous, murdering insurrectionist against Rome. <laughs> and of course, there's no historical record of Pilate ever doing such a thing. In addition to presenting a more flattering depiction of Roman authorities, I think there's a much more substantive theological reason why Mark invented, probably invented this story. Remember that Paul called Jesus our Passover lamb, right? And Mark loved that. But how did he tell a good story? Well, in Leviticus, in the Torah, we read the following. It says, he, Aaron, shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. 
Aaron shall present the goat in which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So in Mark's symbolism, the two goats represented two versions of the Davidic King Messiah. So you have Jesus, who was a selfless, nonviolent, itinerant preacher, and you have Barabbas, the son of the father, who was a violent political zealot and assassin. The Jews cheered more loudly for Barabbas because he was the type of Messiah that they wanted. However, the type of Messiah that the Lord wanted was one that would willingly give his life as a divine savior. On the surface, Pilate was basically bullied by the crowd to execute Jesus. But at a deeper symbolical level, Pilate was an Aaron figure who sacrificed the Lord's goat for our sins. The other goat, Barabbas, was sent back to the demon Azazel, i.e. the Jews. That's who they wanted, so that's who they got. Thus, for Mark, as well as for the evangelists who followed him, the incident of the Pascal pardon of Barabbas served a key theological and political function in their overarching Christological agendas. This is not historical. Event number 11, <clears throat> Simon of Cyrene. So in the synoptics, we're told that for no apparent reason, the Romans compelled a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross of Jesus while Jesus walked in front. Was this usual? Would the Romans force innocent men uh, to uh, carry the crosses of the condemned? Christians claim that Jesus was so battered and beaten that he simply could not carry his cross. I mean, this is a nice theory, but the Gospels don't say this. This is ad hoc apologetics. Uh, Luke, who, again, claimed to have a perfect understanding of Jesus' life, does not mention that Jesus was scourged. Luke intended his gospel to be the gospel, right, not to supplement three other gospels. He intended to write the definitive gospel, and he did not mention that Jesus was flogged. Yet Simon carries Jesus' cross. What's going on here? Well, believe it or not, this whole episode is yet again a Pauline-inspired, anti-Petrine trope. This is not history. It's polemics. The synoptic Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny him and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Peter, whose real name was Simon, denied Jesus three times and abandoned Jesus. He did not take up his cross and follow Jesus, but this other Simon does, right? Now, Mark says that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus, two Greek names. And, Cy and Cyrene was a, a Greek port city. It seems to me that Mark created this person, Simon of Cyrene, an ethnically Greek convert to Judaism, who was willing to follow Jesus, while Shimon bar Yonah, the ethnically Jewish disciple of Jesus, was not willing to follow Jesus. So Simon of Cyrene is a symbol of the Gentiles, replacing the Jews who refused to follow Jesus. So Simon of Cyrene, probably not historical. Maybe there was a Simon of Cyrene, but he never carried some cross. Event number 12, a father sacrificing his son. So in Genesis 22, we're told that Abraham, the father of nations, put wood on the back of his son, Isaac, and made him march up a hill in order to sacrifice him. In the Gospels, the quote-unquote father put wood on his, quote, son's back and made him march up a hill to sacrifice him. This is mimetic of Abraham and Isaac. In the Tanakh, God stops Abraham. Uh, in the Tanakh, the height of evil is parents sacrificing their children. But in the Gospels, a, fa a father sacrificing 
His son is the height of love and glory. Okay. okay. Event number 13. Uh, being sold for shekels of silver and three condemned men. So in Genesis, Joseph is sold by his brothers for 20 shekels of silver. Joseph is eventually imprisoned, although he is innocent. And he has two cellmates, a cupbearer of wine and a baker of bread. Three condemned men in total. One of them will be crucified. In the New Testament, Jesus initiates a new covenant by passing around wine and bread. One of his, quote, brothers, Judas, betrays him for 30 shekels of silver. Jesus is imprisoned, although he's innocent. Eventually, he's crucified. Again, there are differences. Of course, there are. This is how literary mimesis is done. But it is clear that Jesus is the new Joseph. Mark modeled his passion narrative upon a Josephine archetype. This is reason enough to have reasonable doubt about its historicity. Event number 14, Jesus' quick death. In the synoptics, especially Mark, as I said, Jesus dies unexpectedly quick. Here again, the Christian apologists say, of course, Jesus was bleeding out since the night before. And so eventually the blood loss caused his body to go into shock after uh, just a few hours on the cross. Again, this is their wishful thinking. If Jesus was in such a bad condition before his alleged crucifixion, then why did Mark tell us that Pilate marveled that he had died so quickly? Why was Pilate, who was a master crucifier of Jews, so shocked that Pilate had already died? That, sorry, that Jesus had already died. You see, a long, drawn-out death, which was normal for crucified victims, did not lend itself to good storytelling. Mark wants this thing to end quickly. He wants the story to keep moving. This is not history, it's a passion play. It's artistic storytelling. Event number 15, the earthquake, darkness, the curtain tearing and dead saints rising from the graves. Look, maybe these things happened. I believe in miracles, but you cannot say these things are historical according to modern historiography. If the curtain of the temple tore from top to bottom, the curtain that veiled the Holy of Holies, this would have been a huge deal for the Jews. Why, why did no one mention this? Maybe they conspired to conceal this? Probably not. What happened to these saints? Did they die again? Are they still alive? Did, did they appear to anyone we know of? Event number 16, the centurion's confession. I'll talk about that. Event number 17, <clears throat> Jesus' body taken by secret disciples after asking Pilate. I already talked about this. Highly implausible. Event number 18, Women coming to the tomb to anoint the body. So this is really strange. Okay. Now here's a question. Why did Jews anoint dead bodies with oils and spices? Okay. So the answer is that bodies would start to smell shortly after death. So the anointing was meant to mask the smell until uh, the body was finally buried or entombed. John tells us that Jesus' body was anointed before his burial by his secret disciples, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So if that is true, why would Jesus' body need to be anointed again by the women? Maybe the women didn't know that he was anointed, the apologists will say. But even if that were true, Jesus is already buried. Why would they anoint a body that is already buried? Mm. It makes zero sense. Interesting question. Did Jews anoint 
bodies that were already buried? The other mm. thing is it's totally unlawful for women to anoint men's bodies and men to anoint women's bodies, according to Jewish law. Besides, how were the women planning on getting access to yeah. Jesus' body? Anyway, also, I'd have thought they were expecting Jesus to be risen from the dead anyway, according to Christian apologetics. So why were they even bothering? And they just, they should have been, you know, waiting for it to happen. But obviously they, did, they didn't believe. Yeah, they were coming to, they were told explicitly, they're coming to anoint the body. How are they planning on rolling the stone away? So here's what's really happening, I think. Mark needed some plot device. He needed to give someone a reason to go to the tomb and find it empty. This whole episode of the women coming to the tomb to anoint Jesus's body, which is already entombed, and then finding the tomb empty is highly, highly implausible. Mm -hmm. Event number 19, women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. I'll talk about that later. Uh, let's move to, okay. let me finish this section with this, going back to this idea of Homeric literary mimesis, okay? Just something to think about here. Hector, the son of Priam, was the prince of Troy, the son of the king, Hector. What happened to him in books 21 and 22 of the Iliad? <clears throat> well, Hector was essentially abandoned by all of his fellow Trojans. They all, tr they all retreated into the city. They forsook him and fled. Sounds familiar. Hector was the only Trojan left uh, outside Troy. Hector refused to retreat, thus demonstrating his willingness to suffer and die for his cause. Sounds familiar. At first, however, Hector tries to negotiate with Achilles and then tries to run from him. Jesus in the garden tries to get out of his so-called mission. Remove this cup away from me, yet not as I will, but as thou will. Now Hector then realizes that the gods had forsaken him. The Markin and Methean Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why, have you, why hast thou forsaken me? Same exact verb in the Greek. Now, a Christian apologist might say, oh, wait a minute, this is Psalm 22.1. So how can this have anything to do with Homer? Well, MacDonald calls this mimetic hybridity. You see, a skilled storyteller like Mark can seamlessly thread two traditions together. It's master storytelling. Achilles stabs Hector in the throat. Jesus is apparently nailed to the cross. In John, he's stabbed in his side. Achilles then allows the dogs and birds to maul Hector's body. The dogs have encircled me. They divided up my garments. Psalm 22 again. Other Greeks come and stab Hector's corpse. The New Testament Jesus is mocked on the cross. Hector's mother and wife, witnessing the spectacle, weep and wail with grief. In the New Testament, Jesus' mother and wife figure witness the spectacle and weep and wail in grief. Hector's little brother Paris witnesses his brother's gruesome death. And John, the beloved disciple whom Jesus makes his brother, woman behold your son, witnesses his brother's gruesome death. In book 24, Priam begs for his son's body and Achilles, now full of regret, agrees. In the New Testament, a man named Joseph, a man who has the same name as Jesus's adopted father, asks Pilate for Jesus's body. McDonald says that this was no accident. Joseph is the pream of the Gospels. In book two of Virgil's Aeneid, the slain Hector appears to Aeneas and tells him to flee the city of Troy. In the Gospels, the slain Jesus appears to the women and tells them, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. 
In other words, flee the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's a famous Jewish tractate called Sefer Torah Yeshu, the book of the history of Jesus. This is the sort of first polemical Jewish response to the New Testament Jesus. Okay, first polemical Jewish response. And there are different versions of this, but in the Aramaic version, the oldest, the rabbi said that Jesus was executed for sorcery by stoning and then crucified. Uh, his body was then removed from the cross and dragged through the streets by the Jewish leaders, exactly like what happened to Hector in the Iliad. The Romans had nothing to do with Jesus in the Toledoth Yeshu, just like the Romans had nothing to do with Jesus in Paul's letters, by the way. Paul never mentions Romans or Pilate in his authentic letters and says explicitly that the Jews killed Jesus. So the Toledoth Yeshu is a polemical counter-narrative to the Gospels that probably goes as far back as the late second century. My hunch is that the Jewish writers of these things knew that they were making things up. One could argue that the rabbis were mocking the New Testament passion narratives and exposing them as false. It is as if the rabbis were saying, we know that the passion narratives in the Gospels are fiction and based upon these ancient myths. So here's another myth for you, also from the Iliad. You want Hector? We'll give you Hector. So in the second century, <clears throat> in the second century, there, there were Jews, pagans, and maybe other Christians attacking the New Testament Gospels and calling them mythology. The author of Second Peter, who is a charlatan, a forger pretending to be Peter, writing in the second century, says something very telling. He says, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Second Peter 1.16. I mean, look at the subtext. The author of Second Peter, who falsely claimed to be an eyewitness to Jesus, was responding to critics, critics of the Gospels, who accused the Gospel writers and early Pauline Christians of making up entertaining stories, cleverly contrived myths. Now, a Christian polemicist might say, well, the idolaters in Mecca said something about the Quran, that it was asatir al-awwalin, tales from the ancients, the difference is that the Quran presents itself as a corrective of these previous stories, be they biblical or ancient Near Eastern tradition. The Quran acknowledges that it is revising, correcting, and rejecting these accounts. For example, in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says to the Prophet, peace be upon him, We relate to you some of the story of Moses and Pharaoh in truth for believing people. In other words, this is what really happened. The gospel writers, on the other hand, took Jewish and Greek stories about other people, tweaked them a bit, and then replaced the protagonist with Jesus. That is, a very that is very different than what the Quran is doing. The Quran tells us what it's doing. The Quran is transparent. The gospel writers were writing according to a well-known, flexible genre of Greco-Roman literature where mimesis and legend were standard. The Quran, on the other hand, is a sui generis. It's a one-of-a-kind text that does not conform to any classification of antecedent Arabic prose. It is not asatir, it is not shi'r, it is not sajah, it is not mursal, it is not kihana. It is not myth, it is not poetry, it is not rhymed prose, it is not straight prose, it is not soothsaying. The Quran is unclassifiable. And the Quran says explicitly, These are the true accounts. So last one before we move on, we're coming down towards the end of the 
presentation, inshallah. So check this one out. So Plutarch <clears throat> wrote a book of biographies called Parallel Lives, okay? 48 biographies of famous Greeks and Romans. And one of these men was Cleomenes III, who was a Spartan king and radical political reformer, okay? So he died around 220 BCE. Cleomenes escaped to Alexandria, where he was eventually killed. He was stabbed in his side, and then his body was crucified. While he hanged on the cross, a snake coiled itself around his head, preventing the ravening birds from mutilating his face. There was also a group of women who were watching this and weeping. Plutarch said that when the king of uh, Alexandria, one of the Ptolemies, when he saw this, he was suddenly seized with fear. Maybe this was a righteous man hmm. who was beloved to the gods. Wow. So he gave the women permission to perform the rites of purification. Plutarch then says that the Alexandrians started to worship Cleomenes and would come to the spot of his crucifixion and address Cleomenes as a hero and son of the gods. Remember the Roman centurion in Mark, truly this man was the son of God. Or in Luke, truly this man was righteous. A historian might say, okay, fine, but Jesus was still crucified. Only the details were lifted from these stories. Maybe, maybe not. It is plausible that none of these things happened to Jesus. It seems to me that an honest person must concede this. Now, before I get to my plausible story, uh, sort of the finish here, let's briefly go back to something I said earlier, okay? If the details of the passion narratives are wrong, okay, why do we assume that the big picture is right? If the smaller events are implausible, if the smaller events are all implausible, why do we assume the bigger picture is historical? Here's another quote from Ehrman. He says, these are not reliable historical accounts, meaning the gospels, the accounts are based on oral accounts in circulation for decades. You know, he says this all the time. The authors are not eyewitnesses. There are Greek speaking Christians living 35 to 65 years after the events they narrate. There was no one there at the time. Take, uh, there was no one there at the time of Jesus's death taking notes. Many stories were invented. Most were changed. Now, let me give you one example of modern historians changing their minds about the big picture, okay? Uh, and there are more controversial examples I can give here, but I'll keep it tame. Uh, perhaps people heard the story of Nero playing his fiddle uh, yeah. as Rome was burning, right? A fire that he himself apparently started. There are three ancient historians who wrote about Nero, Suetonius, Tacitus, and Cassio Dio. Now, first thing to consider, everything we know about Nero comes from his political opponents. They're highly biased. Now, I remember Mike Lacona arguing that we can't trust that the followers of Apollonius of Tyana saw him after his death because the sources are late, anonymous, and biased. Well, this is exactly what historians say about the Gospels. They're late, anonymous, and biased. So Suetonius, who wrote about 60 years after Nero, said Nero was responsible for the fire and that he watched it blaze from the Tower of Messinus while playing an instrument and singing about the destruction of Troy. Others, however, said that this was just a rumor. Okay, so we have ikhtilaf, difference of opinion. Another thing is that the fiddle didn't exist in the first century. Okay, so he was probably playing a harp or a lyre. But wait a minute, according to Tacitus, who is actually later than Suetonius, Nero wasn't even in Rome when the fire started. He was 30 miles away in a city called Antium. Finally, no one actually saw Nero playing his harp. 
in Rome while the city burned. There were no eyewitnesses. This is conjecture. Somebody mm -hmm. might say, well, still, Nero was known for his outlandish behavior. He was a cross-dresser who loved to perform in drag. He was a singing drag queen. <laughs> well, he, had, he had a flair for the dramatic. You, you heard it first on Blocking Your Theology. Nero was a cross-dressing drag queen. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, maybe, you know, it's, it sort of fits his character. This sounds like the argument, well, a lot of Jews were crucified by the Romans, so Jesus was too. In light of all of this, many historians today maintain that it is implausible that Nero was playing his instrument in Rome up on a tower while Rome was burning. This was an unsubstantiated rumor based on biased reports meant to slander a political opponent. When none of the details support the main event, perhaps the main event is false. Now here's a quote from the Atlantic Monthly. This is December 1996. It's an article called The, uh, um, the Search for a No-Frills Jesus by Charlotte Allen. So Allen interviewed Burton Mack, the famous New Testament scholar, scholar of Q. Um, and so this is what she wrote in this uh, article in the Atlantic Monthly, December 1996. She mm -hmm. says, in the course of a recent interview, he, Mack, revealed his next project, putting together a scholarly consortium that would re-describe Christian origins in some way other than through the gospel narratives and their, quote, crucifixion drama, as he calls it. Because Q contains no passion narrative, Mac believes that no one really knows how Jesus died and that the gospel accounts, uh, sorry, died, and that the gospel stories of his passion, like most of the other gospel stories, are pure fiction, end wow. quote. Now, I don't totally agree with Mac on every point, obviously. But he makes a compelling point here about the passion narratives. According to Burton Mack, and I agree with this, Jesus existed. The first gospel, a.k.a. Q, records some of his actual teachings. But we don't know what happened to Jesus historically because the passion narratives are pure fiction. Mm. And I would add, and Paul of Tarsus cannot be trusted. Just throw that in. Okay. Okay, so here it is. <clears throat> okay, a plausible story. Part one. So I'm just going to read this verbatim as I wrote it, and then I'll take, it'll take a few minutes. Okay, so in the year 31, 32, or 33 CE, a young rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth traveled from the Galilee to Jerusalem to observe the fasts of the Passover week. The Gospels tell us that he traveled with 12 male disciples and possibly a few women, but the number 12 is clearly symbolical for the 12 tribes of Israel. The Gospel writers were envisioning Jesus and his disciples as replacing Jacob and the tribes. Whatever for their exact number, it makes sense that those who followed Jesus down into Judea were a small group of pilgrims. At some point during his time in the Holy City, Jesus cleansed the temple in some way. In Mark, the earliest gospel, we are told that Jesus threw out people who were engaged in buying and selling in the temple area and overturned the tables of the money changers. Matthew and Luke basically echoed Mark, while John added that Jesus made a scourge of small cords and drove out the animals as well. The cleansing of the temple is mentioned in all four Gospels, twice in John, and adequately explains why Jesus immediately made enemies in Jerusalem. It makes historical sense that something like this probably happened. The incident angered the, the corrupt temple establishment, who felt that their status and source of revenue was under attack by Jesus. In response, they began a propaganda campaign depicting, depicting Jesus and his group as potentially dangerous revolutionaries. 
Judean Jews probably looked down their noses at their Galilean brethren, considering them to be simple-minded peasants or hot-headed troublemakers. Of course, the Galileans were known for basically two things, fishing and zealotry. The latter was due in large part to the slain Jewish freedom fighter, Judas of Galilee, who died six of the common era, whom Josephus considered the founder of the fourth Jewish sect known as the Zealots. Ju uh, Judas's sons, Jacob and Simon, were still active in the Galilee at the time of Jesus, and both would eventually be crucified by Tiberius Julius Alexander around 46 of the common era. Galilean pilgrims were also easily discernible from other pilgrims due to certain cultural idiosyncrasies, such as their distinctive backwater Aramaic accents. My theory is that not long after the incident at the temple, some of the temple leaders reported to the Roman authorities what Jesus of Galilee and his band of would-be zealots had done. However, neither Jesus nor his disciples had any intention whatsoever for political insurrection. Personally, I think Jesus cleansed the temple as a prophetic act of symbolism. He believed that if the temple leadership did not clean up their act, so to speak, then God's wrath would descend upon them in the form of the temple's destruction. Over the next few days, as Jesus was teaching at various places in Jerusalem, his disciples caught wind of rumors that they were suspected as being zealots. Afraid, intimidated, and grossly outnumbered, the disciples either fled back to Galilee after taking leave of Jesus or went into hiding in the holy city with Jesus. The ruthless Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, already had several Jewish insurrectionists in custody that he wished to publicly crucify during the Holy Week. He wanted to send a strong message to any and all Jewish freedom fighters. Toward the end of the Holy Week, perhaps even on the day of Passover, Pilate ordered the men flogged and crucified. Starting with Mark, the Gospels tell us that three men were crucified with one of them named Jesus. One could make the argument, however, that the evangelists were employing literary mimesis here. Jesus was the antitype of Joseph, rejected by his brothers, and went to suffer with two other convicts. Literary mimesis, as we saw, is very common in the gospel passion narratives. Thus, the evangelist number three was likely symbolical. It was used to cast Jesus as the new Joseph. The Romans would crucify men in bunches, so it is not inconceivable that Pilate crucified 15 or 20 men on this day. Nonetheless, I will grant that three men were crucified and that one of them was named Jesus. The name Jesus, Yeshua, was the fifth or sixth most common name of Jewish males in first century Palestine, and given the fact that it was an abbreviated form of Joshua, Yehoshua, Israel's greatest military champion, it was likely even more popular among the hot-blooded Galileans. <clears throat> For every 10 Galileans crucified by the Romans, it is very plausible that at least one of them was named Jesus. All four evangelists relate that one of the three men that was to be crucified along with two unidentified leistas, was known as Barabbas. While many, while many biblical translators render the word leistas in the singular as robber or thief, Josephus, writing around the time of the evangelist, always used this word to refer to dangerous revolutionaries. Barabbas was also called a leistas, as well as an insurrectionist, stasiastes. Mark tells us that Barabbas was bound to his fellow rebels who had committed murder in the insurrection, ente stase. It must be noted that in the original Greek, the verb to commit or do, poieo, is in the pluperfect plural here, pepoiekesan. Barabbas and his men had committed murder in the insurrection, not just Barabbas. Therefore, it is likely 
that the duo lestes, i.e. the crossmates, whatever their true number, were loyal followers of Barabbas. What, what, but what is the insurrection? Mark did not tell us, but it seems that he expected his readers to know about it. It was a historical event still fresh in the minds of Mark's readers. We can surmise that Barabbas and his small band of terrorists or freedom fighters, depending on her perspective, had attempted some act of stasis against Romans, against the Romans in Jerusalem, sometime before the arrival of Jesus from Galilee. Pilate had kept Barabbas and his men chained and imprisoned, waiting for the perfect time to execute them, Passover week. Pilate's callousness was on full display as the Jews collectively celebrated God's power by his striking the Egyptians with death. Pilate demonstrated his own power by putting Jews to death on their holiday. This is consistent historically with what we know about Pilate's character from sources outside of the Gospels, such as Philo of Alexandria and Josephus. Interestingly, the Arabic name Barabbas is actually a patronymic title, meaning son of the father, Bar-Abba. This appears to be a messianic title. Perhaps Barabbas claimed to be the conquering king Messiah or was at, or was at least touted by his followers as being a messianic figure. But even more interesting than Barabbas' title was his first name. According to early, some early Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, it was Jesus. Origen noticed this as early as the 3rd century CE. And note, we don't have a complete copy of Matthew's Gospel until the 4th century of the Common Era. It is unlikely that Christians would invent the first name Jesus for Barabbas, a man who opposed Jesus' teachings at every turn. Barabbas' first name was removed from later manuscripts, no doubt for pietistic reasons. So here we have them, the three crucified Lestas, one of them called Jesus, the son of the father, i.e. the Messiah, the so-called king of the Jews, along with at least two of his disciples. You may be chomping at the bit right now wondering, but wasn't Barabbas released by Pilate and Jesus of Nazareth crucified in his place? As stated earlier, while the existence of Barabbas is historically plausible, the notion of some Pascal pardon, practiced by Pontius Pilate, no less, screams of pure legend. The evangelist wanted to historicize key statements made by Paul, such as Jesus being our Passover lamb, or Jesus' betrayal by night, although the evangelist also disagreed with Paul in at least one key area, the nature of Jesus' resurrection. The evangelists were Greco-Roman authors, and Greco-Roman authors embellished, exaggerated, and often created their narratives. This was a standard practice. In no place did Mark claim to be a divinely inspired writer, yet he presented himself as an omniscient storyteller who knew what people were thinking. He knew what the centurion had said at the cross. He knew the exact dialogue between Jesus and the high priest at the former's trial. Sincere Christians just assume that Mark knew these things because he must have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. But Mark, along with the rest of the evangelists, were simply imitating the literary style of the perennial teachers, Herodotus and Thucydides, who made up the dialogue according to what they thought was appropriate. My contention is that despite the evangelist's inclusion of real historical persons in their passion narratives, such as Jesus of Nazareth, Pontius Pilate, Jesus Barabbas, and Herod Antipas, these passion narratives are most likely not historical. The evangelists attempted to historicize the passion of their savior and the mention of several real figures gave their stories a strong sense of verisimilitude. The evangelists, in essence, created a simulacrum or substitute Jesus of Nazareth, which they subsequently tortured and killed with their pens, the Jesus of Christian faith. Countless succeeding generations of Jews, Christians, and pagans were made to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified due to these writings. 
This gives new insight into the Quran statement, which can be translated as, but he, Jesus, was made to appear so, crucified, that is, made to appear so by the evangelists. It was precisely their passion narratives, motivated and underpinned by Pauline Christology, written in the standard Greco-Roman style, replete with literary mimesis from both the Tanakh and Homeric epics, and abounding with historical implausibility that gave the world the impression that Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified. Part two, when Barabbas and his men were crucified, not a single follower of Jesus of Nazareth was present. Why would they be? I agree with James Tabor that the most likely spot of the crucifixion was the Mount of Olives. Countless Jews standing in the heart of Jerusalem would have been able to see the horrific spectacle on the mountain, albeit from a great distance. As he hanged on the cross, Barabbas may have cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was a man who genuinely felt like he was fighting the good fight for the sake of God, but now felt utterly abandoned. To further mock, to further mock Yeshua bar Abba, the Romans placed a placard above his head, which read, the King of the Jews, according to Mark, or this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, according to Matthew, or this is the King of the Jews, according to Luke. Interestingly, only in John do we find the placard reading, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. By the time John wrote his gospel around 90 to 100 CE, he felt it was necessary to clarify or perhaps correct the synoptics. As stated earlier, John eliminated the episode of Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross. He wrote that Jesus was impaled on the cross, and he said that Jesus' body was anointed before it was placed into the tomb, all contradicting the synoptics. Clearly, John went out of his way to convince his readers that Jesus of Nazareth was the one crucified not Barabbas, Simon, etc., and that he was totally dead when he was placed in the tomb. He did not survive. It is plausible that the Johannine community was contending with rival Christian groups that denied the death of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. While the crucified victims were visible at a distance to the people of the city below, who may have attended the actual event on the mountain? We simply do not know. It makes little sense that any of the close supporters of either Jesus would have been present at the scene since Yeshua HaNutsri was considered a persona non grata by the temple establishment and Yeshua Bar Abba was a convicted insurrectionist. In fact, the Synoptic Gospels tell us explicitly that all of Jesus' disciples forsook him and fled. John, of course, belied the Synoptics and placed a disciple at the very foot of the cross. And despite Mark telling us that passers-by and chief priests were mocking, the crucified Jesus, it is also unlikely that any members of the Sanhedrin, temple authorities, or Pharisees were present. It seems to me that the Jewish leaders would have preferred to be at home with their families observing the Passover rather than exhausting themselves to attend the execution of three criminals by Roman soldiers on the top of a mountain. I think the Romans knew that willful Jewish attendance to these gruesome scenes tended to be low. This is precisely why they would crucify their victims along busy streets and on high places. These spectacles functioned as both an indelible demonstration of Roman power as well as an effective deterrent to Jewish rebellion. Christian apologists point out that Mark tells, Mark tells us that several women were looking on from afar and that Mark as a Christian would not have made this up since it was embarrassing that only Jesus' women followers were witnesses to his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. In patriarchal Jewish law, a woman's testimony was next to worthless. Therefore, it must be historical, they conclude. The criterion of embarrassment is definitely useful in determining historical truth. But I think that when it comes to the prominence of women in the Gospels, 
Both Ehrman and McDonald offer more plausible explanations. According to Ehrman, a signature marking motif that was picked up by the later evangelists was that at was that outsiders get it, while insiders, such as Jesus's family members, male disciples, and Jews in general, uh, consistently struggle to profess faith in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior. Outsiders, such as Roman centurions, demons, and women, recognize him immediately. While the male disciples fled like cowards when they felt the heat around the corner, as it were, the female disciples courageously continued to follow Jesus, even to the cross. In my view, Mark's motif is really the result of his underlying anti-Jewish sentiments. And although Mark places Jewish women at the cross and empty tomb, it is their status as women, as outsiders, that trumps their Jewishness. Part three, according to Ehrman, we have, quote, no idea what Jesus said when he was crucified. The gospels give us conflicting statements. If Jesus, that is, Jesus Barabbas, uttered the cry of dereliction from the cross, as I suggested earlier, how would we have known it? How would it have reached us? If a few Jewish leaders were present at the crucifixion along with some women, which I doubt, perhaps they heard Barabbas say these words and then reported it to others. This would explain why Mark and Matthew reported the cry as Jesus' last words, just prior to another loud cry before dying. If we were being honest, however, this is not the way a truly righteous man would die, let alone a prophet or omniscient God. If Jesus of Nazareth knew that he was sent by God, essentially himself, according to Christian theology, on a suicide mission to die for our sins, then what is the meaning of such final words? Christian apologists defend the Markin slash Mithian Jesus by pointing out that he was quoting the first verse of Psalm 22 as a way of signaling to his audience the fulfillment of prophecy, that although the psalmist started in despair, he ended on a much more hopeful note. This might be true, but it doesn't change the fact that the Markin slash Mathean Jesus believed that he had been forsaken by God by being crucified. It seems as though Jesus could not have imagined in a million years that this is going to happen to him. But despite God having forsaken him, perhaps he would be forgiven in the afterlife, although the psalmist does not mention anything about death or dying, but rather that God would save him from his afflictions in this world. Whatever the case may be, the content of Psalm 22 is clearly antithetical to the Christ, to Christian theology, which imagines that the Father and Son entered into a metaphysical covenant before the foundation of the world, stipulating that in the year 4000 after Adam, the Son slash Logos would enter the human flesh and die for the sins of humanity in the greatest act of redemption in all history. On the contrary, the final words of the Markin slash Mathean Jesus sound much more like what Barabbas would have said, a theocratic nationalist who dedicated his life to cleansing the Holy Land of occupying pagans, but who ended up stripped, scourged, beaten, nailed, and crucified by those very pagans in his own country. In his utter bewilderment and despair, he cried out to God and continued to cry out until he died. A Christian would argue that perhaps some of the women who heard, quote, Jesus utter these words, eventually told the disciples, including Matthew and Peter. Matthew then recorded it in his gospel, and Mark, Peter's student, recorded it in his gospel. The major problem with this assertion is that we now know that it makes almost no historical sense to ascribe any gospel to any disciple or disciple of a disciple, and we will be hard-pressed to find a single critical scholar who takes this position. But even if we humor the Christian argument of apostolic authorship, we run into a cascade of other problems. Luke, who claimed to have a, quote, perfect understanding of Jesus' life and times, did not record the cry of dereliction. Instead, he recorded Jesus saying, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit, as his final words. Luke had access to Mark, 
It was one of his sources, but he was clearly bothered by the mark in Jesus accusing God of abandoning him. And John, before being stabbed in his side, Jesus spoke to his mother and the beloved disciple and then uttered, it is finished, as his final words. This begs several important questions. Why didn't the women attending the crucifixion tell Peter or Matthew about these things? If they did, why didn't Mark or Matthew record them? Perhaps Peter and Matthew did not believe the women. Perhaps the women forgot. If they forgot things as important as Jesus' final conversation with Mary and his beloved disciple, Jesus asking God to forgive the Jews from the cross, Jesus promising paradise to one of the Lestas, Jesus saying it is finished, and Jesus being stabbed by a Roman centurion, then why trust these women at all? Why even trust them when they said that the crucified man was Jesus of Nazareth? They were watching from afar. They saw a man heavily bruised, untidy, and disheveled. Was that really Jesus of Nazareth? Perhaps they read the placard placed conveniently above his head, mockingly identifying him as the king of the Jews, or Jesus, the king of the Jews. But this could have described Jesus Barabbas. It is obvious then that when it came to their crucifixion narratives, theology was the main motivator of both Luke and John, not historical truth. This was also true of Mark and Matthew. The two evangelists believed that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, not because they were told by eyewitnesses or disciples who encountered eyewitnesses, but because they were representatives of the Pauline churches whose founder believed the rumors that Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified. Later, this founder claimed that these rumors were confirmed by special revelation, which also unveiled the reason for Jesus' death. God's son made himself a human sacrifice for sin. It is very likely that Mark and Matthew placed Psalm 22.1 upon the lips of the dying Jesus of Nazareth to make a theological point, despite its bothersome aspects. After all, the psalm does seem to describe someone being cornered and mocked by his enemies. Thus, none of the purported words of Jesus from the cross hold up well to historical scrutiny. The versions of Mark and Matthew are more plausible than Luke and John, although, generally speaking, all four accounts are highly implausible. I want to say something briefly about Psalm 22 before we continue the narrative. As I stated, the anonymous Greek Christian who wrote the Gospel of Mark believed that Jesus of Nazareth died for humanity's sins. Motivated by his hero Paul's assertion that this was, quote, according to the scriptures, Mark scoured the Tanakh for something he could utilize as a proof text. The best he could find was Psalm 22. However, Psalm 22 was not as unequivocal as some of the early church leaders wanted it to be. Thus, verse 16 was distorted by post-New Testament church fathers to make it a bit clearer for Bible readers that David predicted the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. The verse reads in the King James Version, the dogs have, encom have, uh, the dogs have encompassed me, uh, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. If this is an accurate translation, one would think that the evangelists would have jumped at quoting this verse in their passion narrative. Strangely, they do not. In fact, not a single New Testament, New Testament writer quoted, paraphrased, or even alluded to the latter portion of this verse, despite apparently its description of someone being pierced through his hands and feet. How did they miss that? All four gospel authors mention that the soldiers casted lots for Jesus' garments while he hanged on the cross. This was for them the fulfillment of the prophecy mentioned in verse 18 of the very same psalm. Verse 16, however, was enigmatically ignored by all. The answer to this riddle is revealed when we look at the original Hebrew. The, uh, it literally translates, for dogs have encircled me, 
An assembly of the wicked have surrounded me, like a lion ka'ari, my hands and my feet. Yeah. The Jewish Publication Society rendered the last part as, like a lion, they are at my hands and my feet. The phrase they are at is not found in the original Hebrew, but is implied by the context. This is Hebrew lyrical poetry. And often in such poetry, a rhetorical device known as ellipsis is employed. In this case, the ellipsis displayed in this verse reveals that the psalmist was experiencing an extremely heightened state of agitation as he described his present situation. The important thing is that the verse definitely does not say pierced. So why do Christians consistently translate ka'ari like a lion as they pierced? Sometime after the writing of the canonical gospels, yet before the writings of anti-Jewish apologist Justin Martyr, who died 165, Christian scribes and or proto-Orthodox fathers deliberately altered the Greek words of this verse from like a lion to they pierced. Thereafter, the new wording, the new wording of the Septuagint, the LXX was, they pierced my hands and my feet. Justin jumped all over this and was quick to remind his readers in his first apology and dialogue that the statement in verse 16 referred to the nails that were driven into the hands and feet of Jesus during crucifixion. Upon scrutiny, however, the Christian sleight of hand becomes exposed. Somebody noticed that the phrase ka'ari sounded a lot like the verb kara, and thus decided to translate the Greek in accordance with the latter. Hence, the verb oruksan from the lexical form orusu was interpolated in the Greek text. I don't want to get too technical here. To summarize the point, the Greek text that the gospel writers were working from certainly did not read, they pierced my hands and my feet. If it had, they would have seized upon the opportunity to point this out to their readers. It was sometime after the compositions of the Gospels when the Greek of Psalm 22 was altered based upon a deliberate misreading of the original Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And, it was only, and it was only after that point that Christian apologists began to claim that the nailing of Jesus to the cross was predicted in the Psalm. The early Christian apologists intentionally falsified the Greek translation. This is exactly what the Quran tells us that they do, yet again, the Quran is correct. And just a quick side note, before we get to part four, the, the rabbis actually point out that Zechariah chapter 13 uh, prophesied the appearance of a false prophet, okay, a false prophet, clearly false according to the context, who would have a very distinctive appearance, by the way. So Zechariah 13, 6, it says this, this false prophet will be asked, um, uh, so he says, Ma hamakot so what are these wounds in your hands? Mm. So Zechariah 13 predicts that a false prophet will appear with wounds in his hands. So the rabbis say this is Jesus of Nazareth, but I would argue that this is the New Testament Jesus. This is not Jesus of Nazareth, because Jesus of Nazareth was never crucified. Now, okay, part four, the conclusion of the story. Okay, so the crucified victims remained on their crosses for several days. This was a standard practice of the Romans. It is highly implausible that a secret follower of Jesus of Nazareth, a man supposedly executed by Rome for treason, would be granted special permission by Pontius Pilate to remove the body from the cross immediately after death. Pilate had just ordered multiple crucifixions on the Passover. But now are we to believe that he was suddenly sensitive to ceremonial Jewish laws concerning the Sabbath? Rather, Mark wanted to entomb Jesus as soon as possible for the sake of his theological narrative, a long, drawn-out crucifixion of Jesus would not flow well for his overall story. But who would ask for Jesus' body? It certainly couldn't be a disciple. According to Mark, they all left Jesus in the lurch. 
Mark needed to create someone of influence. And that someone was an honorable senator, Sanhedrin member, named Joseph of Arimathea, a man with the most common first name among Jewish men of the first century, who hailed from a town that nobody unto this day has ever heard of. Hmm. The creation of Joseph also served another crucial purpose for Mark. Jesus was a Galilean who had died in Jerusalem. According to Jewish law, corpses had to be buried within 24 hours of death, if possible. Therefore, Jesus needed a place to be buried, but not in the ground. A ground burial doesn't work well with a narrative that involves a physically reconstituted body and a grave that must be verified as being empty. Rather, Jesus needed an expensive above-ground spacious rock tomb. And lo and behold, Joseph of Arimathea happened to own one, and he gave it to Jesus. Mark wants us to believe that a respected member of the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem offered his precious family tomb to an itinerant Galilean preacher he met a few days ago who was crucified by Rome and mocked for being a false messiah. But how does Mark explain this? Was it because Joseph professed that Jesus was the son of God like the Roman centurion? Of course not. Joseph was a learned Jewish male insider. All we get from Mark is a vague statement that Joseph was, quote, also waiting for the kingdom of God. More plausibly, whatever remained of the crucified men on the mountain was eventually thrown into a common grave several days after their deaths. Naturally, they had become the talk of the town as they hung on their crosses. Who were these men? Who was their leader? Perhaps after the Passover, some curious Jews made the trek up the mountain only to find a bunch of unrecognizable and unconscious bodies. Perhaps some of the temple leaders had heard that someone named Jesus was crucified, a Jesus who had claimed to be some sort of Messiah and had led a disturbance in the city. Perhaps some of them said that this must have been Jesus Barabbas, while others said Jesus of Nazareth, the man that they had reported to the Romans after he caused a riot at the temple. Some of the members of the temple cult exulted that they had killed Jesus of Nazareth through the Romans, while others doubted they had shek or doubt. And there you have it, an historically plausible alternative to the dominant position among secular historians that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. It's quite simple, really. Some of the Jewish leaders believed that Jesus Barabbas was Jesus of Nazareth. Both men shared the same first name, title, and reputation as causers of stasis. There were probably other commonalities as well, such as physical appearance and age. Perhaps Barabbas was a Galilean. Perhaps he was also a Jesus of Nazareth. The prophet Jesus neither swooned nor was divinely raptured from the cross. No one was supernaturally transfigured, nor did the Romans crucify the wrong man. The episodes of the Pascal pardon and Joseph of Arimathea taking the body and offering his family tomb are historically implausible. This theory also accounts for the disciples seeing Jesus after the crucifixion. Some of them simply remained in his company while he kept a low profile somewhere in Jerusalem. Other Jews who were under the impression that Jesus had been crucified could have seen him as well. However, I do believe that the disciples must have also experienced something supernatural after the crucifixion event and that this experience had a profound effect upon them. They believed that they had witnessed something miraculous. Given the circumstances of the Passover crucifixions, it seems to me that some of the members of the temple cult continued to search for Jesus, believing that he, had, that he, was, uh, believing that he was ultimately not among the condemned criminals. At some point, God took Jesus from this earth. I understand that this cannot be historical from a standpoint of someone like Bart Ehrman, and I admit it, this is my faith conviction. Unlike Christian apologists who insist upon the historicity of the resurrection, I concede that the ascension of Jesus was a miracle and, and, and therefore non-historical. My aim today is only to explain how Jesus may have plausibly escaped the cross historically. 
the disciples went back to Galilee and believed that Jesus appeared to them in multiple visions. These appearances can be explained scientifically. People across time and culture have claimed that they experienced visions of their long gone loved ones. I believe, however, that the disciples' visions of Jesus were real, not imagined. Chief among the, the disciples were James, Peter, and John, the three pillars. Sometime later, these three, along with others, returned to Jerusalem and founded a sect of Judaism known as the Nazarenes, or the Branchites, named after the hometown of their master, Jesus of Nazareth. Under the leadership of Jesus' brother James, the Nazarenes continued teaching the precepts of the gospel. They were a politically quietist movement that practiced a more liberal form of the Jewish law. They stressed asceticism, charity, love for the poor, and relationship with God. Being devout Jews, they did not believe that Jesus was divine or that he had become a human sacrifice for sin. And as I stated earlier, there is no strong evidence that they even affirmed that Jesus had been crucified. The Jamesonian Nazarenes proved themselves unthreatening to both the temple, cult, as well as the Roman authorities, at least for a while. They preached that Jesus was a prophet messiah who predicted the future coming of a powerful figure known as the Son of Man, who set up his monotheistic kingdom upon the earth and vanquished the fourth beast, the Roman Empire. James, nicknamed the Just, was a highly revered figure, handpicked by Jesus himself before his departure, who led the Jerusalem-based Nazarenes until his eventual assassination by the temple called in 62 of the Common Era, almost 30 years after Jesus. The death of James was documented by Josephus. Amazingly, despite being the immediate successor of Jesus and universally recognized head of the Nazarenes for nearly three decades, James is virtually non-existent in the Gospels, and we have no record of a single one of his authentic writings or epistles. In fact, most average Christians I have spoken to over the last 20 years, plus uh, admitted that they did not even know that Jesus had a brother, let alone a brother such as James. There's a good reason for this, however, and his name, of Paul, his name is Paul of Tarsus, who has essentially hijacked the entire movement. Okay, so we're really coming out to the end. I know, oh, it's, <laughs> this is taking a while. Um, but just um, as another side note here, um, Paul's conversion story in Acts is also mimetic of popular antecedent Greek literature. All right, so, so this is in addition to the other historical problems um, with his conversion story I mentioned earlier, such as the term Christian being an anachronism and the fact that the high priest did not have jurisdiction over Jews in Damascus. So in the first century, Jesus and Dionysus were two, quote, gods who were competing for the hearts and minds of the Greeks, okay? Jesus turns water into wine. Of course, Dionysus was the god of wine, who also had many wine miracles attributed to him. The Johannan Jesus says, I am the true vine, right? And the subtext seems to indicate um, that he means true as opposed to the false vine, Dionysus. I am the true vine, right? So now in the, the Bacchae, right, the Greek playwright Euripides, who died around 400 BCE, he mentions that the king of Thebes, whose name was Pentheus, was persecuting members of the cult of Dionysus. Now Dionysus was the killed and resurrected divine son of God. So then Dionysus, as a persecuted God-man, appears to Pentheus, his, his persecutor, in disguise, and Pentheus sees a light. And Dionysus says to him, quote, I would control my rage and sacrifice to him, meaning himself, if I were you, rather than kick against the goads. Pentheus is then punished and killed by the members of the Dionysian cult. In Acts, the persecuted God-man 
all right, and killed and resurrected divine son of God, Jesus, appears to Paul, his persecutor. Paul sees a light, and Jesus says to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is the same exact expression. So Paul is punished by blindness, but eventually converts. So Luke wants to demonstrate the superiority of Paul over Pentheus. But the context of the two stories is the same. We have two persecutors of two divine sons of God who are directly confronted by those divine sons of God by using the same Greek expression, and the persecutors are punished in the same way after seeing a light. This story is most likely fiction. Luke seems to have taken it from Euripides' Bacchae. Okay, so I have two slides left, really close to the end. Now, after thinking about this a bit, I came up with a second historically plausible story, and this one's much, much shorter. Uh, but this story is uh, this story is premised upon the plausibility that the gospel passion narratives are mostly or completely legendary, and I think I demonstrated that. Okay, so according to Paul, our earliest New Testament writer, the Jews killed Jesus. So Paul, and Paul also says Jesus was crucified, obviously. Now, perhaps what Paul meant was that the Jews killed him by crucifixion. But historically and legally, how would the Jews have executed Jesus? Right? If he was found guilty of blasphemy for sorcery, which is actually what the Taladaf Yeshu and, and Quran suggest that the charges were. Right? This is evident sorcery. If that's the case, then they would have stoned him and then crucified his body post-mortem. And thus the Quran says, وَمَا قَتَلُهُ وَمَا سَلَبُهُ They did not kill him, i.e. by stoning, nor crucify him uh, post-mortem, um, as it were. So, And this is also the Jewish claim in the Talmud, that he was stoned and crucified. So, so allow me to clarify then. Paul does not mention Roman involvement at all. Okay, Paul says that the archons of this age killed Christ. All right? The rulers or leaders of this age. The Greek word archon is, is very imprecise. It could refer to a rabbi, a high priest, a Roman governor, an angel, a demon. However, in 1 Thessalonians right, 2.15, Paul is explicit. The Jews killed Jesus. And this verse is authentic. So no Roman involvement. And this is consistent with Josephus, at least a stronger opinion that the testimonium flavium is a total fabrication. Okay. This is also co uh, consistent with the Toledoth Yeshu, the Talmud, and what Maimonides wrote, in the Mishnah Torah, he says, Jesus the Nazarene, who claimed to be the Messiah, was killed by the Jewish court, the Beit Din. No Roman involvement. This also seems to be consistent with the Quran when it quotes some of the Jewish authorities boasting that they had killed Jesus. Now, if a historian or a Christian apologist wants to say that Paul meant that the Jews killed him using the Romans, well, Paul doesn't say that. Yeah, it's possible, but he doesn't say that. In fact, in Romans 13, Paul says that uh, the Roman government does not persecute the righteous and innocent. <laughs> you know, he says, do what is right and the authorities will honor you. Only if you do wrong, should you be afraid. Now, would a Christian who believed that the Romans falsely crucified Jesus say anything like this? It doesn't seem likely. Wasn't Jesus righteous and innocent? Now, most historians would say that John the Baptist and Jesus were very close. Okay. In fact, Jesus was initially a disciple of John and was baptized by John. Most historians take this position. It seems that at some point, Jesus took on his own disciples, uh, but most likely considered, uh, continued to consider John to be like, you know, his teacher or mentor. Uh, okay, so, so here we have two teachers, both with disciples, very close in age, very 
similar in their message, possibly related, possibly cousins, who may have even looked similar. In fact, in the Gospels, people confuse Jesus for John. You know, we're told that Herod and some others thought that Jesus was John resurrected. That makes sense. It's also plausible that John was confused for Jesus. Now, what happened to John? So according to Mark and Matthew and Luke take from Mark, Herod unlawfully married Herodias, right, his brother's wife, okay? And I'm going to refer to John the Baptist as the Baptist now to avoid confusion. So according to the synoptics, the Baptist said that it was unlawful for Herod to marry his brother's wife. And because of this, Herodias wanted to kill the Baptist, but she couldn't. Uh, but then she saw an opportunity. So Herod threw this huge you know, birthday party for himself, and the daughter of Herodias danced for all of his guests. Now, Herod was so grateful, he said to her, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. I'll even give you half of my kingdom. And the girl, coached by her mother, said, bring me the head of John the Baptist. So then Herod had no choice. He had the executioner bring her the Baptist's head on a platter. Okay, so from a historical standpoint, this story sounds like a romance novel, right? A story of intrigue and drama and deception. You know, in Hellenistic, in Hellenistic novels, there's this thing where someone makes an oath to another person, and then, the, and then the other person says something unexpected. So then the first person is forced to fulfill his oath, right? Also, women in these novels and stories uh, um, cannot directly confront the men. They have to be passive-aggressive. Maybe this is what happened, but historically, we're speaking, you know, historically, this sounds like Mark just telling an interesting story that never really happened. Now, Josephus, who doesn't have a dog in this fight, right, as it were, meaning he's not, he's not a Christian, uh, also mentions the Baptist's death. But he says something very different than the New Testament. According to Josephus, Herod Antipas imprisoned the Baptist because the Baptist was gaining many followers and Herod was afraid that the Baptist might eventually lead a rebellion against him. Okay, this is in Antiquities 18. Very different than the New Testament. So this tells us that John was also a messianic figure of some sort. In fact, the Mandians to this day believe John was the Messiah, not Jesus. So Josephus says that, uh, that Herod imprisoned John at the fortress of Machaerus, which was to the east of the Dead Sea in present-day Jordan. Then John was executed. Josephus doesn't say how he was executed. Also, if you look at Josephus's, it actually puts the death of the Baptists a little bit later than what the Gospels say, something like 33, 34, even 36. So, so John's death would have been closer to Jesus's alleged crucifixion. It is plausible that John the Baptist was stoned and crucified or just crucified. In, in the Taladath Yeshu, just an FYI, John the Baptist is, is crucified. This is plausible because Herod needed to make a strong statement to both his Roman overlords and to the followers of the Baptist. However, Tabor points out that John was killed at a fortress far away from his supporters. So maybe what happened was uh, that the Jews living in that area reported the news to other Jews in the heart of Palestine, Jerusalem in particular, that some Galilean preacher of the coming kingdom of God with seemingly messianic expectations uh, or aspirations was crucified by Herod Antipas. And there, there, there might have been Jewish leaders and members of the temple cult in Jerusalem who assumed that that was Jesus of Nazareth, while others said John the Baptist. And these were you know, men who uh, hated Jesus for cleansing the temple, exposing their hypocrisy and teaching a slightly more liberal version of the Torah. The rumor that it was Jesus 
spread. And then some of those who spread the rumor also heard that Jesus was seen alive thereafter. Some thought he had been resurrected, others disagreed, and the rest is history. So just a misunderstanding, totally plausible. None of John's nor Jesus's followers were present at this execution. So there was an, there was an ikhtilaf as to who was actually killed. Eventually, some of the leaders of the temple cult realized that Jesus may still be alive and had never died. They pursued him, but God caused them to ascend, thus thwarting their plans. And finally, finally, this is the last slide. <laughs> Let's revisit the four main criteria of modern historiography. I promise I'd come back to this. Question number one, is the crucifixion of Jesus multiply attested in historical sources? I would say no. Paul wrote that Jesus was crucified in multiple letters, but that is one source, Paul. Um, Mark, who wrote the first gospel, was a Pauline Christian. He believed in Paul's gospel, that Jesus died for our sins as the divine son of God. Mark depended on Paul. Matthew and Luke depended on Mark, and John had knowledge of the synoptics. That's all conceivably one source, Paul. And remember, Paul was not an eyewitness. In fact, none of the gospel writers were eyewitnesses. What about M and L? Well, it is plausible that M and L were created by Matthew and Luke themselves. So M is material that's only found in Matthew, and L is, only, is material only found in Luke. It's plausible that they created that material themselves. That was part of the genre, of, uh, of the flexible genre we were talking about earlier. It's common amongst the Greco-Roman uh, novelists. And that's why they don't agree, because they, they made up these details. What about the unique crucifixion details of the Gospel of John? Well, as I stated earlier, John contradicts the synoptics regarding the Passion narrative time and again. He's writing history through the lens of his high Christology. John is clearly inventing these details. Besides, John is Pauline at his core. Jesus must be crucified. What about Josephus? Well, the testimony of Flavium is a fabrication. Thus, Josephus does not mention the crucifixion of Jesus. The earliest known Roman reference to the crucifixion is in the annals of Tacitus, who died 120 of the Common Era. And there's actually some debate about its authenticity, but historians generally consider it uh, authentic, genuine, and thus an important independent, i.e. non-Christian text that confirms the gospel accounts of Jesus's crucifixion. However, Tacitus wrote the annals around 116, 85 years after the supposed crucifixion, and it's not clear whether Tacitus was relating what was generally known among previous Roman historians or whether he was simply acquiescing to the popular Christian narrative. Okay, Tacitus did not have a reason to question whether Pilate may or may not have executed some random Jew among thousands of others. Question number two is, is the crucifixion an early source as well? It's mentioned by Paul, which is earlier than the Gospels, but Paul gives us zero narrative. However, it is not in Q, which was plausibly earlier than Paul. So no, the earliest source about Jesus that we know of does not mention Jesus's alleged crucifixion. It is not in Q. Remember, there's nothing, nothing, nothing in the gospel account, in the gospel according to Q about the crucifixion of Jesus. It also seems likely that from the subtext of Paul's epistles, that there were Christian factions in various cities around the Mediterranean that denied the crucifixion. And we looked at that. Question number three, was the crucifixion embarrassing? Well, this depends on the type of quote-unquote Christian and what text he's looking at. So the answer is not necessarily. Again, the name Yeshua was so popular at this time because J Jewish parents wanted their sons to be the Messiah mentioned in Daniel 9, who is martyred, and martyrdom is not embarrassing. It is glorious. 
Now, Paul was definitely an apocalypticist. You know, he thought the world was about to end. So, so there's a high probability that he considered Daniel 9 to be happening during his generation, as did many other Jews. And Daniel 9 speaks of a Messiah who is cut off. So I think what happened was that Paul heard rumors that a man named Jesus, who was claiming Messiahship, was crucified, but that certain people also claimed to have seen Jesus thereafter. Paul said to himself, this man is perfect. He's named Jesus, a perfect name, short for Joshua, who claimed to be the Messiah, who was killed, just like Daniel 9 says, then seen after his death. Ah, so this is how God is going to inaugurate these end times, with Jesus' death as a martyr for our sins than his resurrection. So for Paul, this Messiah in Daniel 9 must be the Messiah because the end is so near. So to answer the question, no, in Paul's understanding, insisting that Jesus did die as Messiah was not embarrassing at all. Finally, number four, is the crucifixion socially or contextually coherent? In other words, does the crucifixion make sense in its context? Yes, a lot of Jews were crucified. That's the only one that modern historians get, in my opinion. But the problem here for the historians and Christians is that the specific events surrounding the alleged crucifixion of Jesus in the Gospels are highly implausible which makes one question the historicity of the entire event. So in conclusion, after all of this, if someone doesn't admit that there is a reasonable doubt about the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, if they don't admit that it is at least historically plausible that he wasn't crucified, then we must question their intellectual honesty. And that, my dear brother Paul, is mercifully the end. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed, Dr. Ali Atai, for a magisterial exposition <laughs> of the historical plausibility of an uncrucified Jesus of Nazareth. And I use the word magisterial very deliberately, uh, authoritative, uh, comprehensive, definitive uh, exposition there. So thank you very much indeed, sir. Thank you. Okay, well, we'll leave it there, um, um, and we can all digest the contents over over time, I'm sure. So thank you. Until next time. Salam